Well, comrade, what now? Straightforward conversation. Nice. No hijinks, no nothing. That was very well played. The best gimmick is no gimmick. Exactly. We got to keep guessing, and uh, who knows? We might break a couple of brains while we're at it. <laughs> Welcome to Between the Gutters, where we talk about the stories within the panels. I'm your co-host, Albert, and with us is our other co-host. Yo, what's up, everybody? I'm the other co-host. I am Drew. How you doing? Yo, yo. Welcome, everybody. Welcome to the potty. The potty? I thought I had more. Oh, uh, you know, the potty. The potty. Potty people. Potty I people. thought I had more. Yeah, I thought I had more. I really didn't. But, okay. oh, well. Anyways. Uh, yeah, this week we're going to continue. Well, uh, we are going to continue our our pre, uh, pre-list of honorary mention comics in our build-up to the top 25 DC comics of all time. Tell the good people, Drew, what we are going to be discussing today. In this episode, we are going to be talking about Wonder Woman by Brian Azzarello and Cliff Chang. This was the New 52 era of Wonder Woman that began in 2011. It was written by Brian Azzarello, drawn by Cliff Chang. Actually, Cliff Chang is really the primary artist, but there's also additional line art by Tony Akins, Dan Green, Kano, Rick Burchett, Goran Suzuka, ACO, and Jose Marzin Jr. The run was colored by Matthew Wilson with a little bit of pinch hitting by Nick Filardi. It was lettered by Jared K. Fletcher and edited by Matt Edelson and Chris Conroy. Issue 1 came out in September of 2011, and this run concluded in late 2014 with issue 35. Within that run, there was also a zero issue and an issue 23.2, plus a short story in Secret Origins number 6. The run was collected in six individual trades, two absolute editions, and one omnibus, and it's pretty readily available even at this point, so I don't think it's a tough one to find. That 23.2 is kind of annoying, though. I always thought that was a weird way to try and number something uh, with a decimal point, so if you're digging for the back issues, you got to look for 23.2. It comes in between issue 23 and 24. (laughs) It was a pretty stupid gimmick. I don't even know why they... I think Marvel tried something for a while there where they would go with 0. 0.5. I think it was 0. 0.1. Marvel had 0. 0.1 and DC had to top them with 0. 0.2. <laughs> was it? Okay. Well, they're both stupid. <laughs> I'm glad yeah. that we're past that point in uh, in comics history and hopefully they'll learn from it and they'll never go back to it. But... <laughs> If history has taught us anything, there are a bunch of bad ideas that we're constantly revisiting because the people that come up with them ultimately think that maybe this time they'll get it right. <laughs> Things probably go in 20 or 30 year cycles, right? Because all the there was a point where 
foil covers and those gimmick covers were making a comeback for a while. Like DC had uh-huh. those those uh, lenticular covers that they were doing. Yeah, yeah. And that was something that was big when we were kids. So maybe in another like 15 years from now, somebody who grew up reading comics of this era will make it into the professional ranks and decide, hey, you know what I loved when I was a kid? When we did those point two issues, we got to bring that back, you know? Yeah. Ugh. Or, heck, maybe we'll see some other iteration of it where, hey, kids, you want an NFT? You remember NFTs? <laughs> <laughs> you want to own this thing, this part of a comic that you don't actually own, but you can tell yourself you own? <laughs> <laughs> uh yeah we're 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 a trash society we're 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 just creating products to to guide us into oblivion essentially <laughs> <laughs> oh man uh, uh anyways okay so we're talking about wonder woman i think most people as a way of shorthand tend to refer to it as the brian azarello cliff chang run so no disrespect to all of the other artists who worked on it, but I guess just so we don't have to repeat everybody's name every time, we'll probably, you know, take a yeah. shortcut here or there. Exactly. But before we really dive into the work itself, I like to talk about the various creatives involved in the work. And being that Cliff Chang is the primary artist of the run, we had a pretty big discussion about one of his recent works in Catwoman Lonely City back in episode 165. So I feel like we covered his history and his works with a good amount of detail in that issue or in that episode. So if anyone's interested in what we had to say about Cliff Chang, maybe check that one out. Uh, We also talked about Garan Suzuka in episode 171 recently when we discussed Marjorie Finnegan, Temporal Criminal. And he was also one of the main artists on Wonder Woman. Uh, I think he might have done the most issues after Cliff Chang. So he's a significant part of this run. But yeah, check out 171 for our talk about him. But uh, Brian Azzarello, we've, we've talked about some of his stuff but I don't think we've really we've yet to dedicate like a full episode to the guy. Exactly. Which is weird cuz the guy's kind of got kind of got a big reputation and a big name and he he's definitely someone that we both have a lot of respect for, but I guess up to this point yeah, up to this point, there really hasn't been too much of his work that we've talked about. I think we did do one episode during recommendations when I was discussing his Joker as a crime comic. Um, so that's in our recommendations episode. But other than that, I don't think we've like really drilled down and focused on Brian Azzarello himself. Yeah, um, you know, and his I, work. I, I think there was another episode when we talked about hidden gems and we talked about Dr. 13 architecture and morality, which was a comic that Azzarello and Cliff Chang worked on together. So that might be relevant to the rest of this podcast episode. And I think there was also a Hellblazer story that we discussed in our Hellblazer episode. Right, right, right. I think that was the Richard Corbin one. 
But yeah. we've we've never shown a spotlight on an with an episode dedicated solely for one of Azarello's comics. He's always had to share the episode airtime with other comics that we've discussed until today. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, let's talk a little bit about Brian Azzarello, one of the top three bald Brians from Cleveland in comics. <laughs> <laughs> it's him, right. BKV, and Brian Michael Bendis, right? Like, those are the top three bald Brians in comics from Cleveland. Are they all really from Cleveland? Yeah. Huh, wild. That's, uh, that's a heck of a coincidence. <laughs> yeah, it is strange, <laughs> isn't it? <laughs> it is, it is. Yeah. Um Yeah, what what's what's your first interaction with Brian Azarello or the first time that he's he was he came to your attention, Drew? I'm kind of curious. Oh, uh, it had to be 100 Bullets, I think. That was the thing that put him on the map for me. I know he did work before 100 Bullets, but I didn't read any of it until 100 Bullets and then it was only after that I went back and found some of his earlier stuff. He's a guy who's known for his crime comics. And as a writer, I would say one of his most distinguishing traits is that he has a particular fondness for puns, double entendres, and wordplay in general. Like, you see it all the time in his dialogue. But in terms of uh, my favorite works from him, like, certainly 100 Bullets, Hellblazer... Some a bunch of stuff he did at DC, like Filthy Rich, a bunch of Batman comics. You mentioned Joker earlier, and he did a Lex Luthor miniseries as well. Did a couple of Marvel books. I remember he did this one Marvel comic for uh, Spider-Man's Tangled Web. And mm. I can't remember who the co-writer on that one was, but I remember he co-wrote it with a professional wrestler, a WWE wrestler. Right, right. And it was about, I think it was about Crusher Hogan. Yeah, it was the one where Crusher Hogan was really building up his career. And he, Brian Rosarello establishes that this was kind of his last shot at glory. So yeah. he's he's like putting all his money on the line. And he, you know, it, it's it's the story behind the story, essentially, right? So he... It's about how Crusher Hogan puts all this money on the line, and he he thinks that this is going to be the big gimmick that's going to put him back on the map. But yet, does he know that at the very end of the issue, he's going to face off with the kid that will eventually become Spider-Man? Yeah. And you know, I think the implication of it is that this match with this kid eventually ruins his career. <laughs> yeah. Or ends his career. I, I think that was uh, the implication of the story, which is kind of funny, kind of messed up. It, it, it's a testament to his enjoyment of these dark noir sort of tragedies, you know? Yeah. And I just looked yeah. it up. The wrestler who co-wrote that issue with him was Raven. Remember Raven? Oh, yeah. I do. Was, oh, wait. No. I might be confusing him with Rhino. Oh, okay. I don't remember what? Rhino. I remember Raven. Wasn't let's see. Man, now I'm <laughs> You're gonna fall into a, a Wikipedia rabbit yeah, looking up Raven. 
Rhino, the guy that I was thinking of was Rhino spelled with a Y instead of an I, I think. Oh, okay. Uh, and <laughs> yeah, there really wasn't much to him. Uh, but yeah, now I don't, I don't remember Raven at all. Uh, I, I mean, when I imagine him, I'm thinking in my mind, I'm picturing, uh, what's his name? Was it Sting? Not Sting. Vampiro? I think I was imagining Vampiro. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But I don't remember, like, the name is familiar, but I don't remember, like, what he looked like or his gimmick or any of it. But I think it's fair to say that that might be the greatest thing in his career at this point, <laughs> or at least the thing that we enjoyed the most. <laughs> Probably. <laughs> that was a good comic. That was a good comic. Yeah, it was a great comic. Yeah. Mm-hmm. and a yeah. couple other marvel books that azarello wrote that i really liked were banner and cage which both had art by richard corbin mm-hmm. i noticed recently you posted on the on our instagram feed you read moonshine by azarello and rizzo right yeah i was just about to say that's probably one of his newer well it's not even newer um well, I guess relatively speaking, it's newer, but he's been doing a lot of things at DC. I don't know if he's done anything super recently, but uh, Moonshine was a comic that he did with Eduardo Riso. And, you know, if people who follow his work know him, like we, we just mentioned 100 Bullets earlier, and that was kind of the thing that put him on the map. So it, it's kind of the, the uh, re-teaming of these two you know legendary comic book icons working on this other story and uh it's it's them taking their talents to image to produce you know their own thing as opposed to something from the existing ip of one of the big two Mm -hmm. um yeah and it's I, I just finished it the other day. I, I enjoyed it a lot. If you look at the Instagram, I I was gushing over it in my post, but it's just a comic with beautiful art because Eduardo Riso is an amazing, talented artist. And uh, I was saying that it's kind of a silly premise because it's about, you know, gangsters in the pro- Prohibition era, but, you know, with werewolves. <laughs> it sounds like it's a comedy but they they play it straight and they treat it as i don't know if it's necessarily a horror uh there wasn't anything about it that i found particularly scary but yeah they they inject these elements of horror into historical fiction noir it's mm-hmm. it's it's got a bunch of things going for it but i do recommend it it's a good story what would you say are the things that you've noticed or the things that characterize Brian Azzarello's writing style for you? Uh, very much what you just mentioned earlier, which is a lot of wordplay, a lot of puns. Uh, there's a very, I wouldn't say sing-song style to his dialogue, but I will say that there's a poetry to it. And when he when he writes his various characters, it always feels and sounds like he's writing the best possible dialogue that believable people can sound like. 
if that makes any sense. So they sound like real people if real people were functioning at peak capacity and ability when it comes to speaking, you know, Mm -hmm. because real people, when they talk, there tends to be a lot of stuttering, a lot of ums, a lot of uh, words that they tend to lean on as crutches that they use over and over again. Right. But in his world, everybody speaks perfectly eloquently. And when they say something, the other characters play along and are able to pick up where they left off. And it's just, everybody just works with this amazing synthesis because in, in his universe, everyone is just a wise guy or uh, <laughs> someone who's just got a really pithy speaking style. That's um, it, it's just not, it, it sounds real, but it's also not real life at the same time, you know? <laughs> yeah, I know what you mean. He does do that thing where another character will finish off another character's sentence Exactly, exactly. Because he'll take words that have, I guess it's like double entendre, right? Mm -hmm. Where he'll say something and he'll end it on a word and someone will pick it up and use a different meaning of that word, but that has a similar sound to make make another point, right? And Mm -hmm. it's it's all... It's very clever. Yeah, it's clever and it's catchy to read, but real people don't talk like that. Yeah, because we're just not smart enough. Yeah, yeah, exactly. We're not smart enough, nor are we literate enough to be able to compose clever wordplay like that on the fly. Absolutely. Like, even if there was, even if we were individually, you know, adept at composing these well, good sounding sentences, right? Um, I could say something. And kind of toss it over to Drew to pick up it with pick it up and run with it, and you know he's not necessarily gonna know what I'm trying to say or what I'm gonna do, and he's not necessarily gonna finish that off. And likewise, you know the the same goes for me, right? So, um, it's it's almost like watching a play where yeah, there's so much focus on the dialogue and just how smoothly everything sounds that when you're watching a play everything is just flowing so naturally and so perfectly and that's like the best possible version of how people can sound if they sounded that way that's right yeah yeah and one of the other things that at least for me is synonymous with brian azarello is crime fiction he loves writing his crime stories, noir stories, yeah. just stuff that's down on the gritty end of society. So whenever we do see him do stuff that's more on the superheroic side, it's kind of, I guess, somewhat unusual. And it, it's the kind of thing that makes me perk up and just be curious what he has to say about these kind of brightly colored characters. Cause I think back to something like Dr. 13, which was more of a satirical take on forgotten D list superheroes. Like that one was, that was a comic that was seeped in irony and had a lot of adventure and humor in it. 
Mm-hmm. But I feel like up to that point, the stuff that I was associating with his name was stuff that was more harder edged, you know, like stuff like Hundred Bullets, which is a really gritty crime saga, a noirish story, uh, his Batman comics, which are gritty takes on Batman. And I mean, by gritty, I just mean more hard-edged and realistic crime stories, not like gritty in the sense that they were just like all centered around violence and stuff, but they were gritty in the sense of being emotionally dark and taking you into uh, like his Broken City, for example, or his Joker comic or 100 Bullets or his Hellblazer. Like those are stories that pull you into really grim places places that i feel like a normal person would typically want to stay the hell away from because like who wants to go into some crime riddled alley and you know open yourself up to being attacked by some mugger or whatever or you know they'll and not only does he take you into like plots like that but he deals a lot with uh characters experiencing the ramifications of that kind of violence and those kinds of grim experiences so he does a good job with making you feel Mm. i guess he kind of takes your mind on that journey where you end up kind of swimming in that dark space yeah yeah no i i I mentioned how I just read Moonshine and definitely see that there where I guess it's an element that we see in a lot of noir fiction where the character has to deal, like you said, with the consequences of their actions, but because of their own personal turmoil, they go on this dark brooding journey of, you know, reconciling their actions with their, either morality or their conscience or whatever but yeah 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 it's and a a lot of his uh crime stories end up dealing with pretty tragic endings too like stories that just make you feel sorry for the characters like all the things that he put his characters through and this was the result it's like dang that was heavy like i feel like people who only want happy endings might not like his work i think that makes sense um especially when you list out all the various comics that he's worked on it's it's i'm hard pressed to say that any of them are joyous experiences they're they're fun they're they're definitely fun for you know a, a type of person who enjoys mystery and um the misery <laughs> and misery and and the what's it called the the inner turmoil of the human soul like yeah. that that kind of dilemma and and tragedy i, mean, I love that but, stuff so that's why i like his yeah comments, exactly man. exactly right it's that's my kind of fun watching other people suffer <laughs> right right <laughs> fictional people just to be clear fictional people exactly <laughs> i i don't i don't sit there on a friday night just staring out my window waiting for someone to get robbed to like <laughs> you know get my jollies 
but uh yeah you're right right there's it i i i think it'd be interesting to see him do a kid story i i feel like there's something out there that he's probably done that is the closest thing that he's ever done to a kid friendly story well you know what maybe doctor 13 might be the closest thing cuz it's not nearly as brooding and yeah you know uh painful to read uh painful in the sense that you know the the characters are just put through emotional torture right but Mm -hmm. um yeah that's that's probably the closest thing that i can think of uh there's also what's it called superman for tomorrow but that's a different kind of torture that's the kind of torture (laughs) where you got to put yourself through jim lee's art for 12 issues (laughs) (laughs) that comic was very brooding that's a superman comic that has a lot of Superman brooding and clenching his fists and talking to a priest and bearing his the burdens of his soul. Yeah. I feel like, I think in Man of Steel, uh, when Zack Snyder did that, I, I want to say that it, it almost feels like he took that from uh, Superman for Tomorrow. Was, was that what it was called? Yeah, for Tomorrow. Yeah, Superman for Tomorrow. That That whole scene of Superman feeling the turmoil of being superman in an ugly world so he has to go to church and uh confess to this pastor uh and really put himself through the emotional ringer you know and yeah i don't know uh i guess that's an iconic scene (laughs) i only read that comic one time through uh back when it was being serialized and i haven't gone back to it but it is a it is a story that i think about rereading every so often although i don't own my own copies of it yeah and and if i were to buy it it would have to be extremely stupidly cheap because i'm not paying full price for that yeah that was a comic that actually got a lot of hate from what i remember when it came out because there was a lot of hype for it too because everybody was saying whoa, it's Brian Azzarello and it's Jim Lee. You know, this combination of these two superstars. It's going to be Superman's hush. Yeah. That's that's <laughs> why people were so hyped about it because Jim yeah. Lee had just done hush on Batman yeah. with Jeff Loeb. So people were like, oh, Jim Lee's going to do 12 issues on Superman. So it's going to be like the same thing where we get 12 issues of Jim Lee drawing Superman's greatest hits. He's going to go through a gallery of his rogues and you know it'll culminate in some massive mind-blowing battle yeah but it's just gonna be the showcase for his art (laughs) yeah yeah and that's not what brian azzarello wrote at all and i feel like it's a story that i would appreciate a lot more if he had had a different artist like if he had had somebody like eduardo rizzo or marcelo frusen drawing that story which would have required somebody who was capable of you know conveying emotion on the page and drawing stuff with subtlety and drawing figures who could act as you know like yeah. actual actually act as opposed to just pose which is what jim lee does uh i mean i kind of get it like that's what he's known for so on some level you probably want a writer who could tailor the script to the artist when the artist is the star of the show Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but 
But as far as we're concerned, Brian Azzarello was the star of the show. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I mean, for a lot of people, Jim Lee was was probably the draw. Uh, it wouldn't surprise me if that was a lot of comic book fans' first introduction to Brian Azzarello. Yeah, um, was I think it was. Jim Lee, right? Yeah. I remember hanging and, out on forums at the time and... You know, before the issue came out, before the first issue of that story came out, we were some people who were also into Vertigo Comics and Hundred Bullets. We were like, kind of hyped up for it, you know, because it's Brian Azzarello draw, uh, writing Superman, and we were just hyped for it. And and then there were a bunch of other people who you know didn't read Hundred Bullets or Vertigo, so to them it was like, oh, it's gonna be Jim Lee, and they were pretty disappointed with for tomorrow because they thought the story sucked yeah yeah i i'll have to admit that it wasn't something i I read it a long time ago and i don't think it's something that i enjoyed even at the time but like you i'd be curious to go back and revisit that to see if there is something that i can find in that that I can salvage for, you know, for, well, yeah, yeah, just, I, but even thinking back to my reading of that experience, I'd have to admit the thing that jumps out to me isn't necessarily Brian Azzarello's writing as much as it was how bad some of the art was on Jimmy's end. Like I think of the way that he designed Zod, and he gave him all these like weird spikes. It was. He looks like the Bondage Queen corny. or something. Uh, even then, it it was bad. It was a bad design for for Zod. Like you could tell that the reveal. Oh, spoilers! The revelation <laughs> that Zod was, you know, the main villain of this comic was supposed to be this big deal because. You know, I think up to that point, Zod had just been in the movies and he'd been built up to the status of a legendary Superman villain. But from the 1980s Christopher Reeve Superman movie, and we had never seen him in comics at that point. So it was kind of Zod's first appearance as a comic book villain, as a comic book character. So it was supposed to be this huge reveal that, oh, man, that's the the big bad villain in this is Zod. And when you finally see him, he just looks super corny. He, yeah. He's a dude with all these, like, spikes all over the place. It's It really did feel like just bad 90s, a bad 90s design aesthetic. If, if you took, if you went back to you know, Wildcats or something, and you looked at oh, uh, a Damonite or something, it, it kind of looked like that. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Or Ripclaw. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> you mean Warblade? Ripclaw was the dude from Cyberforce. Get it straight, man. Oh, sorry. Sorry. <laughs> Ripblade, Warclaw, Clawblade, Claw Rip, whatever. <laughs> They all sucked. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. All right. And some of the other creatives that we mentioned at the beginning of the show, uh, there was Tony Akins, who also contributed pencil art 
to quite a few issues here. I'm not super familiar with his other work. I feel like the only other thing of his that I've really read was some of his fill-in art in other Vertigo books like Fables. But I, I do think he did a good job in Wonder Woman. I mean, Cliff Chang is a superstar. Goran Suzuka is on the same level. But Tony Akins, he held up pretty well, man. Yeah, I'm not familiar with him, so I don't really have much to contribute. But I, I will say that the synthesis of everybody working on the book this book in particular, um, and just what, looking at the final product, it it was all a really beautiful book to look at once we were done, and you know a, a really well written book. So, you know, I'm sure his contribution was important to to what the uh, final ultimate product ended up looking like. Yeah. And then we have Matthew Wilson as the colorist and Jared K. Fletcher as the letterer. Both of them would go on to rejoin Cliff Chang on Paper Girls. And we talked about Paper Girls in its entirety back in episode 135. Matt Wilson in particular has gone on to gain particularly great recognition. He won an Eisner in 2017. And he's also colored other notable books like the Jamie McKelvey Young Avengers, the Jason Aaron Russell Dowderman Thor, the Wade Samney Black Widow. And we talked about the Black Widow story in episode 85. Uh, he also did the Rainbow Rowell Runaways. So he's gone on to many great things. Jared K. Fletcher, he's been around for a couple decades, I think. And I just see his name on all sorts of comics. Nice. Yeah, I I do think that the coloring for this book was pretty exceptional. Uh, you mentioned that they had a couple of different artists, but the coloring does a good job of maintaining a sense of uniformity throughout the series. And yeah, uh, it, you know, in this era where we've got so many different artists just pumping out books, where you know the the publishers think it's a better idea to get the book done no matter the cost with as many different artists it the quality of the work ends up suffering as a result right and in this case um the coloring really does a good job to maintain a cohesive style throughout the mm -hmm. book from beginning to end so i i i do think it's very good coloring for for this book yeah, definitely exceptional. So before we dive into our full book discussion, I do want to share some uh, contextual information, a little background. And this is some information that I got from reading the Modern Masters interview with Cliff Chang, uh, published by Tomorrow. They do a, they're, I don't know if they still do it, but at one point, they were doing a series of art books slash in-depth interviews with various artists in the industry. And Cliff Chang uh, was volume 29 of that series. So I uh, got that book a while ago, and it originally came out back in either late 2013 or early 2014. So this was 
the interview was conducted about two years into their run on Wonder Woman. So there's an entire section of the interview dedicated to talking about this series. But yeah, there's a few things that uh, turned up in that interview that I thought would be pretty interesting. Before doing the Wonder Woman book, Azarello and Chang had done Doctor 13, Architecture and Mortality, some years earlier. They enjoyed the experience and wanted to work together again. Now, their first idea was to do a miniseries called Jimmy Olsen, Super Friend, which would have been similar in tone to Doctor 13. Can you imagine a Jimmy Olsen book by Azarello and Chang? <laughs> I, I'm really into it. And the interesting thing about that is we would eventually see Matt Fraction and I think Epting dude. Uh, do Steve Lieber. Steve Lieber, yeah. And I, I'm not saying that those two are... No, I, I think Matt Fraction and, and Brian Azzarello are similar enough in style. So I, I can imagine that that Jimmy Olsen series being you know, a spiritual cousin to what they could have done. Yeah. 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 And in the interview, they mentioned that it probably would have been similar in tone to Dr. 13 being more irreverent and humorous and seeped in irony. And they had actually wanted to include Jimmy Olsen in his turtle monster form in Dr. 13. Like there's a scene in Dr. 13 when our heroes face off against a Mount Rushmore composed of the DC architects. Do you remember that scene? I do. It's uh, towards the end of the the, the story. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so originally yeah. that scene, instead of the Mount Rushmore architects, it was supposed to be Jimmy Olsen in his giant turtle monster form. Oh, right, right. Yes, and Cliff Chang, and ha he actually drew the original pages with Jimmy Olsen in it, but uh, I guess he had to change it. But in the art book, there's a... A sample of what his original pencils looked like. Right, right. From what I remember, the Mount Rushmore was Grant Morrison, Geoff Johns, Greg Rucka, uh, Mark Wade, I think. Martin. Mark Wade. Okay, okay. Yeah, because it was no. around the time they were writing Fifty Two. Okay, okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's a heck of an idea. Yeah. So the Jimmy Olsen. Super Friend book didn't come to fruition. And then both men, Azarello and Chang, ended up getting involved in separate projects for a while. However, they continued to talk to each other and they actually did get approval to make an Aquaman graphic novel, which Chang describes as a Pixar take on Aquaman that would have been unabashedly heroic and devoid of the irony of the pair's previous work. Huh. That is something I'm really curious about, actually. Yeah. Keep in mind, this interview was from 2013. He he mentioned that he didn't want to share anything about the story in case they would ever get a chance to actually do it. Hmm. But given that it's been like 10 years, I don't know if it's ever going to happen. It's probably never going to happen. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Right, right. Unfortunately. Yeah. I, I mean, but that's the way of comics sometimes. They... You know, they there's a lot of stuff that happens behind the scenes and 
we never know what it is on the business end that stops them from being able to create certain stories. Um, I imagine that there's sometimes just arbitrary things where they just go, oh, we got a Shazam movie coming out. You want to do a Shazam story instead? How about you do a Shazam <laughs> story instead? You know, stuff like that, you know, where the business kind of drives the creative end over what they want to do. And heck, I don't even necessarily know if what they really are chomping at the bit to do in their heart of hearts is an Aquaman story. But it, it, I, I think in in the past, what I would have assumed was, you know, the editorial people come to you and, you know, you're an up and coming writer. And then they say, well, who do you want to work on? Or they'll tell you, uh, you know, would you like to work on Spider-Man or, or Superman or something like that? Or Batman, right? These are the big ones. But yeah, it's, I, I'm, I, I guess I'm curious to see how some of the more random uh, pairings of creators came to be, uh, mm -hmm. creators and, and comics IP came to be, you know? Um, I have a feeling Tom King might actually have more freedom and well yeah more freedom to choose, pick and choose what he wants to to write seeing as how he's done a couple of these stories where he just kind of takes uh b maybe even c list characters and gives them his magical tom king sad superhero sheen yeah <laughs> you know a sad superhero sheen i like that yeah yeah i i, I imagine he's he's one of the rare exceptions where that gets to be the case but I, I i doubt that everybody else gets that kind of pull or or uh yeah or freedom you know yeah okay so that aquaman graphic novel didn't work out and partially that could be could have been because cliff chang got the offer to do greendale the graphic novel written by Joshua Dysart that was based on the famous Neil Young album of the same name. Nice. That, yep, that ended up taking priority for Chang. And while he was finishing Greendale, Chang and Azarello were still in talks, or still in communication with each other to do another DC book. The first thing that they talked about doing was an all-star Green Lantern book starring Jon Stewart. What? Yeah, we missed what? out. We missed out. Yeah. We really did. Yeah, Man. according to Chang, it sounds like the something. It was more about the line fizzling out, and that's why uh, the book the line fizzled happened. out hard, man. And yeah, that was in all likelihood just due to mismanagement and idiocy from the top, <laughs> <laughs> like Dan DiDio. <laughs> well, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I, I mean, because All Star Superman did, you know. It was it was a pretty meteoric hit right off the bat. Yeah. Um, All Star Batman and Robin, maybe not quite so much, but I, I I don't know. Maybe it was just a thing where All Star Superman took a little too long to finish, or um, combine that with the less than stunning reception of All Star Batman and Robin. I like. Who knows what what caused it to 
to really die on the vine like that. But it, it was such a wasted opportunity for this really ambitious project that could have been pretty amazing. Mm-hmm. I would have loved that. Yeah. And alas, you know, alas. We're still living with your failures. Yeah. <laughs> I bet your kids say that about you. <laughs> I'm at my best when I'm ragging on Dan DiDio. <laughs> okay, so All-Star Green Lantern didn't work out. So at the time, Azarello was working on this line of books called First Wave. It was a... Oh, I remember those. The yeah. Spirit, right? Yeah, it was and, uh, a short-lived line of comics featuring Doc Savage and the Spirit. So it was very pulp-oriented, but it wasn't just Doc Savage and the Shadow, um, the Spirit. Uh, but they would also cross paths with other DC characters like Batman and the Blackhawks. So it was a more pulp-oriented reimagining of those characters. Mm. But when First Wave went away the Batman book that they had planned to do together ended up morphing into a Vertigo Batman book called Batman. That's Bat-Man. So they were going to do a Batman book for Vertigo. And here's a quote from Chang talking about what Batman would have been about. He says, It would have featured this young and inexperienced Batman who still relied on his guns fighting police corruption, gangsters, and Mexican drug cartels in a West Coast version of Gotham City. Mm. And you're going to love this part, Albert. L.A. Confidential meets Batman. <laughs> I love it already. It's the best <laughs> thing ever. I'm uh, rock hard for it. <laughs> uh, I've got a wicked rager going on at the thought of it. <laughs> Just that... keep it in your pants, big boy. Exactly. That that entire description did it all for me. <laughs> uh. <laughs> Around this time, Azarello had gotten the offer to write Wonder Woman, and he did ask Chang if he'd be interested in drawing Wonder Woman instead, but Chang said that he preferred to get this Batman book out into the world. However, three months later, just as Chang was about to start drawing Batman pages, DC told him that they decided to reschedule its release for two years later, in 2013, as Chang says, in hindsight, I think they really wanted Brian and me to work together on Wonder Woman. So they so, actively plotted to scrap a bunch of stuff just to get those two together? <laughs> that's what it sounds like. Yeah. It, yeah, I mean, I'm glad that they got to work together, but that's kind of messed up if they, you know went to those links <laughs> yeah and also it was 2011 so we're kind of getting close to the tail end of vertigo things were probably like starting to spiral into oblivion at that point they were taking resources away from it in order yeah. to you know save themselves the trouble of having to deal with all that yeah Okay, Azarello and Chang had their first conversation about Wonder Woman in January of 2011, and that was when they mapped out a story and an approach to the work, even though it was still at this point that Chang was hoping to do Batman. However, 
Wonder Woman ideas continued to percolate in Chang's mind, and when it was official that they would be doing Wonder Woman, he was mentally ready. Azarello, for his part, when the book was announced, he told the comics press that their Wonder Woman wasn't a superhero book, but a horror book. Maybe that isn't 100% true when you read the final work, but as Chang says, it wasn't going to be strictly capes and tights. It was going to be more macabre, and there would be mystery. It would use mythology in a way that contemporized it and made it fresh. Mm. So do you see any horror influence or horror roots in Wonder Woman, Albert? I think so, a little bit. And if I had to say the the strongest elements of it that I could point to as horror elements really comes from the art. Um, well, that that's not entirely true. There there are some bits and pieces here that are I don't know if terrifying is the word, but that are shocking, I guess. So, um, like I think about it, right? One of the earliest images that I can think of in the series is in the first issue, for the first time, we see these centaurs that are concocted by Hera. And the way that the centaurs are brought into the world is someone comes up and chops off the heads of these two horses. And then from the, these open wounds, uh, these man, men torsos emerge from them. And those are the centaurs. Um, so there's something definitely shocking about that and unnerving. And just as a concept, that's a pretty disturbing idea for how centaurs are made or how yeah. these centaurs were birthed into the world. Um, and I think as you read the book, there are bits and pieces here and there that remind you that, oh, this these characters are pretty vicious to one another in a way that can be somewhat eerie and disturbing. But yeah, I wouldn't say that my first impression of it off the top of my head is that it is giving off strong horror vibes. And, and I... Yeah, I wouldn't say that that's the first thing that I would go to. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, it just made me imagine a, an innocent little kid asking mommy and daddy, where do centaurs come from? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right? <laughs> I mean, when you heard that in their interview that they were going to try to aim this more towards horror, well, first of all, had you read it yet by then? Or was that something that shaped your perception of the book going into it? Was that something you had read and seen before you had entered the book or something that you had read after you had already read it? Most likely something that I had read after. I don't remember, like it's been so long since the book came out. I don't remember what my mind was thinking in the hype leading up to the release of the book. Cause I think uh-huh. there was so much stuff going on in that time period because it was the new 52 and every book was getting relaunched. So yeah, there was a lot yeah. going on and I wouldn't be surprised if a lot of these 
creative team interviews fell into the ether for me or I just didn't notice in the overwhelming bombardment of all these people trying to promote their books. So I I don't right. think well, here's what I do remember about the book before it came out and this is going to sound pretty pedestrian but I, for some reason the thing that I remember is how Wonder Woman originally was designed with pants. Oh yeah, I remember that. Yeah. Like in the first initial iteration of her she had like these blue tights. Um, yeah, they were either tights or just leather pants. But yeah, yeah. Yeah, she had her usual basically the the final design that we see in the comic it's exactly the same except instead of uh you know, having bare legs, she had full-on pants. Mm-hmm. So uh, a lot of people saw that artwork uh, when it came out a couple months in advance. And I suppose people didn't like it. The idea of Wonder Woman with pants was, I don't know, abhorrent or something. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And there, were, there was enough of a hubbub where they ended up uh, going back and changing the design. Yeah. I mean, taking into consideration how many awful designs we got from that period, it it kind of stuns me that that's the one that people, you know, decided to make a big scene about. Yeah. Um, I I mean, personally, I thought the, the Superman design was the absolute worst. But, that was a really bad design. Yeah. And no one they didn't do anything about that, right? No, no one said anything to the point where, oh, we're gonna, you know, make a big enough stink where we're gonna change this back. That ended up being the status quo for a while. Super, super armor for Superman, right? Yeah, <laughs> and he didn't have his underwear on the outside. Yeah, yeah, and he had a red cape, and I think he had the red boots, so it looked really weird. Really <laughs> yeah. weird. <laughs> But most of those New 52 designs were Jim Lee designs, actually. Even the Wonder Woman design. So the so Cliff Chang's original cover art featuring Wonder Woman wearing the pants, that was based on Jim Lee's design. Mm-hmm. But uh, in the interview, he talked about how uh, he made, you know, for the actual comic, he did make some slight modifications to to the costume just to fit his own drawing style and I feel like he did enough with it that it looks like his own, you know? Because when you compare how Wonder Woman looks in her comic versus how she looks in the Justice League comic that came out in the New 52 era, where they were supposed to be wearing the same costume, right? But one clearly looks way better than the other. Yeah. Well, I mostly just chalked that up to Jim Lee, but whatever. oh actually i'm looking at it right now in oh okay so the first iteration of her you're right she did have like the pants right Mm -hmm. and then when you look at justice league number one she basically has the onesie and yeah i guess you could say that it's different enough but i i will still say that a lot of what makes that ugly is Jim Lee's art. <laughs> fair point. Fair point. Yeah. 
so bad. <laughs> um, did you read yeah. this run back when it was coming out, or do you remember what your original impressions of it the first time you read it? I read it as it was coming out from the library, so I do remember reading it. I don't think I want to say that I didn't read it all the way through the first time because. I didn't want the experience of reading it piecemeal. I want, I preferred to have it all come out so that I could read it all at once. But I think when I had made that that conscious decision, I had already read like a substantial chunk of it. But the funny thing is now after all this, uh, rereading it again for this podcast, a lot of it was reminiscently familiar i mean it wasn't entirely clear to me but i kind of remembered a whole bunch of it so i might have read i might have actually read the whole thing mm -hmm. just don't really remember but anyways that being said uh my initial impressions in my first read through of it was i was appreciative of it i did enjoy the art but i think again comparing my read through of it this time around uh, with my memories of it being incredibly fresh, I, I would say that there are a lot of nuances that I didn't pick up on in my first read through of it. And yeah, um, I, I, I found more to appreciate in this, this read through. Maybe, maybe it's just a matter of me getting older and wiser or whatever, but yeah. Um, I, I, I think it's, it's aged pretty well for me. Yeah, that makes sense. And I also think that reading stuff specifically to podcast about it kind of makes you pay closer attention and have a it forces bigger you eye to for think detail. About it. Yeah, that too, yeah. exactly. Yeah, and you know, it it also helps that for the podcast, I I ended up writing out my synopses, which in its own way is me working out my own thoughts on what I've just read and mm -hmm. by having that experience it gives me more to think about in terms of what I've just consumed yeah absolutely all right shall we begin our discussion of the book properly let's do it to it all right so typically when we talk about our top 25 or our honorable mentions, we cover our f four basic criteria, which are the craftsmanship of something, originality, impact, and how it withstands the test of time. So you can kind of structure our discussion around that. So starting with the criteria of craft, we're just talking about whether the comic is technically sound, is it well-written, well-drawn, well illustrated, did the creators demonstrate mastery of the language and form of comics? So yeah. what do you have to say about the craft of the book, Albert? I think we covered a lot of that in the initial opening. Um, I mean, just goes to show how much we were chomping at the bit to get to it. But mm -hmm. yeah, we a lot of the signature stylistic traits that we see Brian Azzarello uh, traditionally exhibit when he does a lot of his writing. We see that completely on display here when we're reading uh, his Wonder Woman. Uh, the 
the dialogue that exists between the characters is all really pithy and it all sounds really good very much like a play like i mentioned and i i think comparing it to a play is actually pretty interesting seeing as how this is a a comic where that uses the greek pantheon are they greek roman greek right greek, greek yeah yeah it uses the greek pantheon and seeing as how so much of that material was you know mined for uh, a whole bunch of greek tragedies and plays of the time it kind of makes sense it, it works very well in this weird way that he would be able to capture that essence in the way that he writes these greek characters it's it's uh it's a greek play on paper you know mm-hmm. um, yeah that's a really good way of putting it yeah in terms of the art uh we've we've already you know spoken to the accolades of uh cliff chang and goran goran suzuka as well as uh the the colorist and anchors and all the all the people that contributed to it to give it this very cohesive style to the point where even though they had several different artists on it, you you don't really, it's not distracting and you can't really tell the difference. It's almost seamless. Uh, well, you can obviously tell the difference between the two different artists, but it's a seamless transition from one artist to the next, right? Yeah, so, it's not jarring. Like there are some comics where they get a fill-in artist and his style totally clashes with the exactly. primary artist, but we don't exactly. have that kind of conflict here. Exactly. Uh, and, you know, not to keep, going back to it but i've i've definitely seen things where you know you you have one artist and then suddenly you get someone like a jim lee to do a couple of panels or or you know a fill an issue or something like that and it's just like what <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah but yeah so in, in terms of uh the art i it's it's a beautiful book and it's a well-written book and i i think um you know just for a little behind the scenes for some of you you that are listening to the episode the one of the reasons that we're covering this and you know it's not the only reason but i ended up buying copies of this cheap recently on on um online and we going over like the various episodes to do for the podcast it was it just felt like it was a natural thing to do seeing as how we both had copies of it. We both hadn't read it in a long time. And uh, I absolutely do not regret buying it and owning it in absolute editions. This was uh, especially sitting here in hindsight, it, it was a great choice to to own it. And I was fortunate enough to get it at a, at a good price. Yeah, totally. Yeah. What'd you think of the craft? Like what were some highlights for you? I think, it's wonderfully self-contained, but really tightly plotted as well. Like one of the things that is pretty interesting to me, especially considering the era it came out in, is that this comic, it's a little bit over 35 issues, but it doesn't have any crossover bullcrap, you know? Yeah. Like yeah. you don't have to know about anything that's going on in 2011 at DC Comics to understand or follow what's going on in Wonder Woman. You can just read from issue one and read it all the way to the end. And you don't need to 
you know, there's nothing you else need that you stop need. Stop or pause and ask yourself, wait, why are all these other superheroes here? What does Wonder Woman have to do with Batman or Superman or the Court of Owls or whatever? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like this is a comic where outside of Wonder Woman, outside of the very cast of this book, there really isn't any reference to other stuff that's going on in the mainstream rest of the DC universe, right? Like you don't have to worry about where the Justice League is. You don't have to worry about Wonder Woman making out with Superman or whatever like that. It's just a story where everything you need to know that's relevant is in these pages. And there's no other outside material that carries any weight whatsoever. Like if you read the Justice League comic from the New 52 era and Wonder Woman's in it, like it's almost a different character from the Wonder Woman we read in this comic. Yeah, I, I full wholeheartedly agree with that. The the Wonder Woman that we see in that Justice League is nowhere near as interesting or as smart. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Jim Lee yeah. Wonder Woman in Jeff Johns Justice League is just a super strong yeah woman exactly can you know punch stuff she was a very one-dimensional character um well two dimensions she also had big boobs (laughs) right 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 but it felt like when jeff johns was writing his justice league it that was his basic cue for for all of them was wonder woman is strong doesn't take crap from anyone okay that's her character green lantern's kind of a jerk that's his character. He's a hothead and he's a jerk. That's his character. Uh, Batman, he he's tough but silent. That's his character. It, li- <laughs> it literally just felt like that's just how he was reducing these characters. And it just... I hated that run so much. <laughs> yeah, it was really bad. I, I read that when it came out too. And yeah, it it would be a fun comic to podcast about just to make fun of it for a couple hours, but it's not something that I would willingly choose to read just for my own pleasure or edification. Yeah. Yeah. There's, there is no salvaging of that. And it's, it's probably one of the nails in my Jeff John's coffin. (laughs) Yeah. But anyway, going back to wonder woman, I do also like how it has a pretty large cast, but everyone gets, plenty of memorable characterization and the important characters get plenty of character development. So I think that's something that they were able to pull off pretty successfully. Cause sometimes when you have these books with really large casts, things can get a bit mm. unwieldy. Yeah. And admittedly, I do think after rereading this, some of the characters that do uh, come up throughout the series, some, not all of them, have like really definitive uh fates or you know you don't really necessarily see what happens to every single character but all of the important characters you know what happens to them and all of the really central important characters are the ones who get character development but for the most part um everybody you know they're distinct you know like in whatever scenes that they are in, you have a good feel for their personalities. Sometimes their motivations are 
intentionally inscrutable. So you don't always know why they're doing what they're doing, but there's a mystery to it, you know? And for most of them, those kind of things do get revealed by the end of the story. Yeah, yeah. I want to go back to a point that you were making just a little earlier now, uh, but you're right, absolutely right, when it comes to the size of the cast of the book, because I'm sure, uh, well, I mean, I don't know how many people think about it, but when you're thinking about writing and, um, you know, telling stories, I, I, I often wonder if people realize how hard it is to write a story with such a large and ever-expanding cast where you don't get to a point where things become unwieldy and you begin to ask questions of, where did this guy come from? Well, how did that happen? And, you know, you're just juggling details. And I think that's just another highlight of Brian Azzarello's strength as a writer is that he's able to write all these different characters and not have it just become this mishmash of details that just that you just become blind to as you read it, as you kind of power through or whatever, right? They all serve a purpose and they all bring something to the overall tapestry of what he's writing and they all have a value that adds to the heightened experience of your reading of it yeah um and he does it in a way where it's not super dense you know it's not overly dense like there's a lot of things that happen throughout these 30 something issues and there's a lot of characters but it never feels like you're just overwhelmed with exposition you're not bombarded with a lot of recapitulations or people talking about you know things that we don't really need to know like everything that happens has a purpose yeah there's no over explaining things everything here it just makes it a smooth read like you don't have to feel like it's work it's actually really enjoyable because like you said his dialogue is very like theater oriented and it's super communicative with the least amount of words that he can use right Mm because it's not a very dense book to read it's actually a fairly quick read if you're just trying to blast through the words but yeah that's a skill in and of itself is being able to most effectively communicate with the fewest amount of words possible in order to get the point across right that's that's a hard skill that a lot of people don't have yeah and the artists do a lot of work in conveying that story because there's so much stuff that is communicated to us through the art and we don't actually have to you know additional words are unnecessary when the art communicates the emotion just as effectively i don't know exactly how azarello and chang uh worked together like i don't know if azarello wrote full scripts for cliff chang but in the absolute editions there are a couple of samples where you have the story out what i guess yeah they just call it a story outline like there's a sample story outline for a full issue in one of the bonus features of the absolute edition and kind of just looks like the marvel method where azarello lays out with all the story beats that happen on a page-by-page basis, but he doesn't write like 
you know, there are six panels here and this is all the dialogue that these characters say or anything like that. He just like writes out like page one, like this happens. And then like pages two and three, you know, there's this scene. And then, you know, page four, he, he doesn't get super specific about like how many panels or whatever. He just describes the scene and what he wants communicated on the page. And then it just seems like the artist, Cliff Chang in this case, would just, um, you know, lay it out using his own uh, imagination and creative processes. And, you know, he'd be the one who kind of like works as the storyteller in presenting what we see on the final page. And I, I guess Azarello probably went back after and put in the, wrote the dialogue. Um, so I'm, yeah, I'm not sure if there was a full script, but it's, if they didn't actually use a full script, this is a pretty fun way to see them work together because they're they're totally in sync. And when you look at the extras in the Absolute Edition, it's kind of amazing how Cliff Chang was so able to communicate like every important story element just through these page summaries that are, you know, a couple paragraphs at the most. Mm, mm, mm. right yeah it's this whole story it's a pretty fascinating take on wonder woman it's more of an urban fantasy about greek gods but it just happens to star one of the most iconic characters in the history of american comics right so i, right. I feel like the way that they were able to kind of juggle both of those concepts the superhero and the mythological elements it was really well done like very creative and inventive but also just easy to follow and very engaging right i i wanted to mention one more thing to piggyback on what you were talking about with the characters too um i remember when we talked about this when it first came out a few years back well you know probably like a decade now <laughs> yeah <laughs> but one of the things that we mentioned at the time was the use of the greek pantheon as the antagonist for wonder woman right and i think for me and you in particular because we spend so much time thinking about these characters and the various cast members that populate their worlds we we tend to think about things like oh who's their rogues gallery what's what's the best villain that they have who's the who's your favorite villain what kind of story would you do for this villain or that um traditionally i would say wonder woman is someone who's had a tough time with villains because I, well okay i think it's fair to say like everybody knows batman's villains even lex luther or uh, even superman has a handful of villains that people can point out off the top of their head but with wonder woman it's a little tougher they're you know i guess if most people would had to had, have to say they'd think of cheetah cheetah che i don't know what's your name cheetah 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 you know when you eat cheetos cheetos 
Yeah, but they she was the villain that they brought into that second Wonder Woman movie, but I'm pretty sure they didn't do anything to save her, right? But when you think about Wonder Woman's rogues gallery, they're really um isn't much to work with there and what dude the... you ain't got no love for egg foo uh no <laughs> no on, dude egg foo <laughs> i do not claim him he I is do not claim him. modok but you know a thousand percent more chinese modok is way cooler than egg foo i'm sorry i cannot <laughs> give that to egg foo man Dang, dude. <laughs> yeah but one of the clever things that I don't know if this was by accident or by design, but uh, you know, one of the clever things that they ended up doing for this book was that they took the existing Greek mythology and just built the antagonists out of existing characters in Greek mythology, which mm-hmm. was like, man, yeah, I mean, we we'd seen Wonder Woman do stories with that pantheon before but even then it wasn't it was kind of your traditional take on those characters which was these very uh typical greek looking characters like the version of Ares or war that you can imagine is just an aggressive looking dude in you know in armor that that's basically what he was yeah and and for them to go, okay, we're just going to take these characters, and since the universe is rebooting for the new 52, we're just going to design them in our way, which was, he he gave them all very interesting looks that were wholly unique, and gave them more of a life than the typical kind of roman greek or not roman the the typical greek god sort of design that you would normally imagine with these characters Mm -hmm. so i do think that in terms of craft that that was a great touch on their part and you know even to this day um now that we're in an era where we have wonder woman movies and these characters exist like if you think about that wonder woman movie with gal gadot that version of Aries that they use he's a pretty forgettable lame sort of concept uh idea of what Aries should look like i, I would have taken uh cliff chang and brian azarello's version of airy of of war any day uh over mm-hmm. that and, and it's such a simple idea for a design just this old man who wears a khaki looking suit and his feet are just always soaked in blood he's barefoot that's it's not a costume but it's a compelling design in and of itself you know cliff chang's design for war is just his version of brian azarello (laughs) that's great yeah (laughs) i dig it i dig it man and the idea of apollo being I it's he's he's it's another character in a suit, but his whole look is he's he's obsidian black and it's it's a very like haunting sort of look too. Like I I can't really describe it, but he definitely sticks out, you know? Yeah, and his look is strange because he's Apollo, the god of the sun, but he yeah. only turns 
he only looks like the sun when he's act- actively using his power. Most right, of the time, right. he is that dark obsidian color, um, and it just makes him look menacing. Like when whenever you see him in a scene, it always just feels like he's intentionally or consciously controlling himself so as to not unleash the full power of the sun. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. So it, it yeah. kind of makes you just wait for those moments when he does unleash it because in the comic yeah. when he does do it, it is pretty devastating. Yeah. Another design that I think of is Hades and mm. Hades looks like a little kid. Yeah. <laughs> he's he's kind of tiny and he's got the this sort of plated armor on on his body and the thing that jumps out most about him is his head his head is basically a candle or a bunch of candles you know yeah and so the wax the bottom is melting portion, over his eyes exactly so the bottom portion of his face he still has a mouth but the rest of his head is just covered in wax and he's got these candles coming out the top of his head it's i don't know where they came up with that but that is an interesting design yeah even wonder woman has some pretty great designs in throughout the series. I mean, we mentioned a little bit how Jim Lee did the original design for the costume, but with Cliff Chang's modifications, I think you can definitely see how much better it looks in the Wonder Woman book compared to the Justice League book. And like one of the things about Wonder Woman's look in this comic is that it is more graphic oriented like the lines on her suit actually look like they mean something you know and then there are those moments when she takes those uh bracelets off and she uses the powers of i guess the powers she inherited from zeus to you know do stuff and the way that the lines in her costume end up lighting up with the electricity power signature there's something pretty impressive looking about that you know that's a moment of spectacle that just you know looks cool Mm, mm, cliff mm. chang also did do an original design for wonder woman and it's the design that first appears in issue eight the armor so that if if he didn't have to use the jim lee design that would have probably been her look in the series because in the interview book he talked about how that was his original design before he before word came down from the top that you know jim lee was redesigning everybody so it's the it's the look of wonder woman where she's got that shield on one arm uh and then her other her sword arm has that i don't know exactly what it's called but it's got like some kind of armor covering on her sword arm and she has like a she has like a full chainmail thing underneath her uh, chest armor, hmm. and it's she cool. has her hair tied up. Yeah, it's a it's a really good look for Wonder Woman. Yeah. I also yeah, noticed. I'm looking at it right now. Yeah, I also noticed throughout the story during different scenes there are some kind of callbacks to some of her old costumes too. Yeah. Like, I felt like uh, I forget which issue it was, but. Earlier on in the series, when they first go to London, right before it's right before they meet Lennox, Wonder Woman and Zola are in a nightclub or a bar, and there's a band playing. Mm. And Wonder Woman's outfit in that scene, it 
kind of reminds me of what she had in the 90s. Remember that bad 90s Mike Diodato period? What, where she had the uh, jacket? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It kind of felt like that was Cliff Chang's more tasteful take on that kind of look. I'm trying to go back to it to see. And oh, then there are well. some other scenes when Diana and Zola are walking around. I think, I forget if it's London or if it's when they're in France or something, but Diana has her hair done up big and she's wearing this kind of, it's not exactly a trench coat, but it's like a fancy looking ladies coat. Like that totally mm-hmm. reminds me of how she looked in the 70s or something, you know? Yeah, when we had the version of Wonder Woman that was like the karate master. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I remember that. I remember that. I was like, yeah, that 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 thought did occur to me too. <laughs> yeah. One of the other things I liked about the art, Cliff Chang seemed like he consciously used heavier inking to generate a darker feel that would match the story's tone. And that adds a lot to the atmosphere. In his interview for the Modern Masters book, he he talks about some of the other artists whose work has been an influence on him as he was working on Wonder Woman. So reflecting on his influences, he says, and I quote, There were years when all I had was Alex Toth and Jordi Burnett around, Zorro and Torpedo. Other years, it was Steve Rude's Nexus and World's Finest. These days... I look at Eduardo Rizzo and Marcelo Frusin a lot, as I have in the past. I have a wonderful book that my friend David John Felice gave me, a copy of Massimo Carnaval's black and white work on Dylan Dog. It's a small volume, but it's fantastic. That's been inspirational as well. That, and I also keep around the few volumes I have of Dino Battaglia's work. But it always changes. Hopefully, all of these informed my work to some degree. So I thought that was interesting because I, there were definitely pages where I could see that Eduardo Rizzo and Marcelo Frusin influence. Like those are guys that I kind of associate with Brian Azzarello. So I wouldn't be too surprised that Cliff Chang had been looking at their work to just to study for himself. Because Rizzo, you know, did 100 Bullets, Frusin did Loveless and Hellblazer. Right, right. Uh but Steve Rude, like there's, there's a uh, one panel in one of the issues, and I, I should have probably written down which issue it was, but I, I did take a picture of it, uh, so maybe I'll try to post it on the feed later on. But there's a a panel in there that totally reminds me of a Nexus panel from Steve Rude. Just I think it's an image of Apollo using his power. He's He's just pointing, he's raising his arm at somebody and shooting an energy blast. And it just totally looks like as soon as I saw that, I was like, wait, did Cliff Chang read Nexus? And then I <laughs> and then I read that interview and I was like, oh, I wouldn't be surprised if he actually, you know, referenced that specific panel I'm thinking about to draw this panel of Apollo. Right, right. I think I'm looking at it right now and it's a cool energy blast. It's, I mean... I think it's such a simple thing, but it's so much fun to look at. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Goran Suzuka, I think one of the things he really excels at, especially in Wonder Woman, is he drew some excellent, disturbing stuff, especially with all the things that he did with the Firstborn. 
like there's some pretty grotesque imagery associated around the firstborn mm. like not only the, when the firstborn you know finally gets his power or you know gets the throne like first of all he's all super burned up but then he turns olympus into this it's like the insides of somebody's body you know it's like really gross yeah yeah but there's also it's... this one scene before he takes the throne and it's the scene when he's still uh in the clutches of apollo there's a scene where apollo and dionysus have firstborn on a table and they're just slicing off bits of him that they can eat <laughs> that sequence for some reason man it's always it never fails to make my skin crawl. There's just something gross about it. I don't know how, what it is. I th- I think it's because in the drawing on the table, uh, you see the firstborn stretched out, and then there's all these like bits of fruit and other things. Like they just look like balls or or fruit uh, covering up various parts of his body. Like he's a, a Thanksgiving he's a ham or something. Or something. Yeah, exactly. And. Every time I th- I think, even just talking about it right now, man, it just gives me the heebie-jeebies. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, but it's stuff like that that I do think makes me... It, w- when you when you were reading that stuff about how, oh, there there's horror elements within the book, it's stuff like that that makes me think of the horror elements. It's the the eeriness and creepiness of them drawing you know scenes where people are forced to eat other people and it's not it's not like saw or something where it's over the top uh barbarism or anything like that right there's something in how subdued it is the fact that they're eating a dude with a knife and fork there's something disturbing about that <laughs> yeah yeah they're just you know? slicing bits of flesh off of him while he's alive <laughs> yeah 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 and like, you know, talking about the firstborn and how, uh, you know, once he ascends, that version of him was pretty cool looking, too, because he's got like this crown of antlers mm-hmm. and basically his all his skin has been burned off. So all the muscle tissue and the veins and stuff underneath are just fully exposed. And the cool thing about that is when he's fighting towards the end of the series, his veins come off his body like a weapon, like tendrils yeah. that like wrap around people. And he walks around with this, this, this cape made of all of the veins and sinews that are part of his body. It's, it's, it's a disturbing. really, it's a disturbing, but also pretty creative design for this character. Yeah, totally. Yeah. So speaking of creativity, you want to talk about the originality of the work? So is the comic creative and imaginative and does it have something meaningful to say? I I'd, I'd say so. There's definitely a lot of material there. It feels a little I think it's deceptively not dense, but you know, as we've said earlier, when you take the time to actually unpack it and really consider it there's actually quite a lot there um we uh you know we talked about how he took these greek god characters and he could have very much given you the 
typical atypical version of Greek gods that you would normally imagine, which is mostly likely someone in a toga or something like that, right? <laughs> and he reimagines them as uh, just contemporary people that exist in the world, but he, yeah, he he highlights the attributes that they have that make them that internally and subtly speak to you as a reader so that you realize, oh yeah, that makes sense. That's what a sun god would look like, or that makes sense. That's what a goddess of the hunt, goddess of the moon looks like, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. Um, I have these chapter summaries and I was thinking we could kind of go through it chapter by chapter. Uh, I, I broke them down in terms of the different volumes of the trades that came out. So mm -hmm. I can try to go through those and we can discuss the originality as we go through each volume. Yeah, let's do it. All right. Volume one, Blood. Across the world, forces are being set in motion that will have consequences that will be felt throughout the realms of the gods. A young woman named Zola is approached by a mysterious stranger who is trying to take her to safety. They are beset upon by centaurs. Before she is taken to the one place, she will be safe to the home of Wonder Woman. After a brief update, Wonder Woman returns to Zola's cabin to investigate, and the identity of the stranger is revealed to be Hermes, the messenger of the gods, and he has come to protect Zola because she is pregnant with the child of Zeus. In Singapore, Apollo performs a ritual and reveals a prophecy. One of your father's children will murder another to take their place. And it is also prophesied that there will be a great war. On Mount Olympus, Hera is angered by Zeus's philandering and plots with strife to strike at Zola. Wonder Woman, Hermes, and Zola go to Paradise Island to take sanctuary among the Amazons. Zola learns of Wonder Woman's upbringing and how she was treated as an outcast because of how she was birthed from clay. When an attack occurs, the Amazons take to the forest, lashing out at everything and anything. But then Wonder Woman realizes that the Amazons are under the influence of a glamour and are, in fact, attacking each other. Wonder Woman takes command of the, of the situation and restores order, then confronts Strife, who makes a cryptic comment about how the child of Zeus she seeks isn't Zola's child, but Wonder Woman herself. As the Amazons prepare a funeral pyre, for all the dead from the attack, their ranks begin to sow with discontent. Wonder Woman has brought nothing but death and devastation with her to Paradise Island, and the revelation about her birthright has just embittered the Amazons even more towards her. Understandably upset about the lies she has been fed, Wonder Woman confronts Hippolyta, demanding the truth, which Hippolyta confirms. Wonder Woman is the byproduct of copulation between herself and Zeus. And she had and she had kept this all hidden away with the fiction of her birth from clay for years to protect her from Hera's wrath. At the pyre, one of the Amazons, Alika, voices her grievances with the gods and with those in charge. But before the situation can reach a boiling point, Wonder Woman appears to make amends by casting herself into exile. In London, Wonder Woman, Hermes, Zola, and Strife spend the night out on the town in order to blow off some steam after the stress of all the recent events. Hera goes to Paradise Island to confront Hippolyta in light of the recent revelations. 
After a heart-to-heart -heart conversation between Wonder Woman and Zola about family, Wonder Woman returns to Paradise Island only to find Hippolyta has been turned to clay and that all of the Amazons have been turned to snakes. With everything that has happened, Wonder Woman needs to make some new allies. She befriends another child of Zeus by the name of Lennox, who offers her assistance, and together they reach out to other gods in the Pantheon in order to, to serve as a deterrent or a peace offering to Hera. Wonder Woman makes a secret offer to Poseidon while Lennox and Hermes go and make an offer to Hades. When all the players come together, the terms of the deal are revealed. They propose a power-sharing agreement where Poseidon shall rule as king by day and Hades by night, with one queen between the two of them at all times. Hera is incensed by this deal, but before she can respond, Wonder Woman, Wonder Woman transports herself to Hera's viewing pool and destroys it, effectively blinding her to their movements. Poseidon, amused, takes his leave, but Hades is not appreciative of this at all, uh, of this deception and tricks Zola into entering his realm. One, one way or another, Hades will have a bride, and that's the end of volume one. Yeah. Were there? Uh, yeah. Was there anything about this volume that uh, jumped out at you, or anything that you felt was worth mentioning? I think it's a clever reimagining and reinterpretation of the Wonder Woman mythos. We brought it up already, but the creators definitely embraced the Greek mythology roots and they put their own spin on it to make it feel more contemporary and like an urban fantasy kind of story. And I think it really works. Like they gave Wonder Woman a new origin as well, something that was close to what we had always thought about her, you know, being born of clay, but they ended up putting a twist on it by revealing that she was actually, you know, the daughter of Zeus and Hippolyta. So like that, I think, is a pretty good twist when you're doing a reboot of a character. Like it's just close enough to the original that you won't really offend people who are, I guess, loyalists or purists to the classic stuff. But it's just different enough where it does make longtime fans, longtime readers curious about what will happen next. The mm -hmm. uh, one thing that I that jumped out at me in this first volume, and I think it's something that we would see again and again, is how Azarello takes this existing cast and gives everyone their own motivations right so yeah. that all of these characters are playing against one another and it's not just this um binary sort of situation where these people are good these people are bad but it's really more about everyone having their own self-interest right like mm -hmm. whatever it may be and it really kind of defines wonder woman more as a diplomat and a politician than a warrior because we're so accustomed to seeing wonder woman as an amazon as this warrior so much so to the point where every time we see a comic with her that's kind of the concept of her conceptualization of her that we have at the forefront of our understanding of her right right so 
the thing that a lot of writers and a lot of people that read Wonder Woman forget is that she came to the world of man as a diplomat. She came to, uh, you know, broker peace to the world of man during an era of great strife and conflict. So it makes a lot of sense that she actually has this ability to negotiate and plan on this other level that avoids conflict because that's just as much a part of her as her Amazonian heritage, right? Yeah. And yeah. And we see that very early on in this first volume where in while they are on the run from Hera, who is, you know, out to get them, the first thing that they do is they reach out to these other gods to see if they can negotiate some sort of deal. And even that deal is isn't a real offer. It's it ultimately ends up being a ploy that they work out so that they can bring other power players and pit them against one another and give themselves the room and leverage to do what they need to do, which is destroy her viewing pool and protect themselves from her. And ultimately that deal, the the deal that ends up forming between Hades and uh, Poseidon and Wonder Woman, that is all just a feint, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I, it, it really jumped out at me how much planning and plotting is present in this version of Wonder Woman. And I, I really did enjoy that and notice that more this time around in my, my reading of it. Yeah. There's a lot more throughout the series as well as volume one that has Absolutely. to deal with that has to do with deal making and political maneuvering and machinations and plotting and scheming and things of that nature. Yeah. You kind of get a taste of it here. We're introduced to a lot of the key players, but not all of them. Like yeah. They take their time to reveal important characters throughout the course of the run. But the characters that we are introduced here um, even some of the characters, like Hermes, uh, is one that stands out to me. Um, it feels like we get enough of an introduction to him that we don't really question why Wonder Woman trusts him. She just trusts him. And it's interesting to see how that relationship plays out throughout the series because later on, he ends up betraying her. And uh, I think reading volume one again, this time around, the story does a good job of presenting a Hermes character in a way that um, we get enough of his motivation to understand why we think he would be helping Wonder Woman at this point in time. But I did notice that there's just enough left unspoken that we actually don't know that much about him. And I feel like it's mainly because Wonder Woman is so quick to trust him that it's easy for me as a reader to just accept that he wants to work alongside her, that he's some kind of heroic character. 
Exactly. But as it turns also, out, it's, it's not even necessarily about heroism. It's just him being a god, so he's not really operating by the same standards that mortals would. He's got his own agenda and his own role to play in the grand, you know, Greek tragedy of things. Right, right, right. I'd also say that things are moving so fast over the course of the story that as a reader, you're so caught up in it that you don't even necessarily take the time to think about who's good or who's bad, except for the fact that someone is, except for the fact of whoever is against you in this moment, right? So when you're reading it and you're just caught up and Hermes shows up, you just kind of take it on faith that, okay, we are on the same side as of right now. And in order to avoid getting killed by Hera or getting killed by Hades or getting killed by Poseidon, in the moment, we are allies. And as far as we're concerned, that's how it's going to be until things change. Yeah. Speaking yeah. of things moving quickly, one of the other interesting things I noticed this time around reading it is how it kind of feels like the whole thing, the whole backstory about why Zeus is no longer on his throne is glossed over pretty quickly too. Like it becomes this huge big thing throughout the story because the different characters are vying for the throne of Olympus. But mm -hmm. I don't feel like we actually know what happened to Zeus. Exactly. But it doesn't really matter. <laughs> it's like right. It's it's so such fascinating storytelling to me because I feel like a lot of other storytellers wouldn't be confident just leaving that ambiguous or up to the reader's imagination. I feel like most writers would try to explain the backstory of what happened and, you know, this is why everybody's fighting for the throne. But, yeah, they don't do that here. It's just the story begins and Zeus is already gone and we don't know what's happened to him. And all we do know is that all these other gods are plotting for his throne exactly it you're right it, it almost doesn't matter like it matters that zeus isn't there but it doesn't matter why he isn't there because the yeah. consequences are really the main thing exactly exactly you want to move on to volume two yeah okay in order to get zola back wonder woman hermes and lennox go to mount etna to seek the aid of hephaestus the smith Hephaestus gives Wonder Woman new weapons to use, but she discovers that his work force is comprised entirely of discarded Amazon boys. Wonder Woman worry works to free them, all only to realize that all the men view Hephaestus as their savior. Wonder Woman and Hermes travel to the underworld to find Zola in an advanced stage of her pregnancy and try to sneak away with her. When they are met with Hades, when they are met with Hades, who proposes who proposes his own offer for Eros's pistols. He will trade Zola's freedom. Wonder Woman hands the pistols over and proceeds to leave when Hades fires on her, hitting her directly in the chest. As preparations are made for the wedding of Hades and Wonder Woman, we see the reactions of various interested parties to the news. Ares and Strife catch each other up on the gossip while Wonder Woman's friends debate her rescue. Although Zola is the most adamant about saving Wonder Woman, to everyone else the objective was to save Zola. Although Hephaestus does, does have an invitation and he will be bringing a guest. As the guests arrive for the wedding, 
Hades has reservations of his own and seeks to test Wonder Woman using her own lasso of truth. And if she answers truthfully and satisfactorily, the wedding can proceed. If not, she will be hung by her own lasso. When tested, she responds by saying that she does, when asked whether she loves Hades or not, she responds by saying that she does love him, which turns out to be the truth. But she refuses to be bound in such a way, and she grabs her lasso and takes off. With the forces of hell pursuing her, she runs into Hephaestus, Lennox, and Eros as they arrive. They prepare to leave when Hades catches up to them, pondering how Wonder Woman was able to trick the lasso of truth, to which she replies that she does love him because she loves everyone. Hades is shaken by this. Defeated, he allows Wonder Woman to leave. But before she returns, she fires a single bullet into Hades' chest as he is gazing at his own reflection. Strife returns from the wedding with news about everything that's transpired, but Hera has her own news. She's just made a deal that might bring Zola to her. Apollo and Artemis attack Water Woman and their friends and capture Zola, bringing her to Hera. And the conditions of Hera's deal are revealed. For Zola, Hera has promised Apollo the throne. Wonder Woman and Hermes arrive to take Zola back, and in the ensuing chaos, Apollo ascends to the throne, but Hera reveals her own little plot, which is that Apollo's reign will be a short one, as Zeus would never allow it. In response, Apollo strips her of her immortality and power. And power. Meanwhile, Zola has begun, uh, has begun labor, and Wonder Woman sends her and Hermes away, remaining behind to fight Artemis. The two do battle with Wonder Woman beating her soundly. She then strikes a deal with Apollo. Now that he has his throne, they agree to leave each other alone, to which Apollo tentatively agrees. Wonder Woman returns to Zola to find that the child has been birthed, but Hermes has stolen it. In a frozen wasteland, a hand claws its way through the ground, while another mysterious figure prepares to enter the fray via boom tube. End of volume two. Yeah. So this is a the ending of uh, volume two uh, with issue 12. That was something that always stood out to me. And I originally began reading this entire run from borrowing volume one at the library when it came out back in the day. So uh, when the issue when issue 12 came out though i remember i was at a store and i pulled it off the shelf and just flipped through it and i saw that last page and i saw the boom tube and i was like dude that's pretty it's clever a great stuff. moment it's a great moment like yeah, the way yeah. that that it's drawn is just fantastic it's just understated like there isn't anything where he has to make it obvious that, oh, this is Orion, the new gods are coming, or anything, you know? It's just super simple. Anybody who's been reading comics for a good amount of time will recognize that helmet and recognize the yeah. boom tube and the lettering or the... I don't, I'm not sure if that's Cliff Chang's panel design or if that was the letterer who did that, but the way that the boom tubes look throughout the entire series is pretty great. Uh, with the Kirby crackles and everything. But I... I I definitely have strong memories of pulling issue 12 off the rack and just flipping through it, looking at the last page. You know, I didn't care if I spoiled stuff for myself back then. 
So when I saw that, I was like, dude, I can't wait to read this in its entirety. <laughs> yeah, yeah. For we spend a lot of time on this podcast admonishing, you know, fanboys for for stuff like that, right? And I would say that, you know, for those of you that listen, maybe it sounds like that's not something that we're capable of at times, but, you know, turning that page, getting to the last page in that trade and seeing um, Orion there and the boom tube and understanding that this is a chance for them to reboot the DC universe and retell the story of Wonder Woman and to seamlessly weave it into the origin of the new gods as well it it's just such a clever thing to do and just the sort of fan service that we can appreciate i was gonna say as opposed to like watching a a video where you know you see oh that's toby mcguire spider and andrew garfield spider-man oh (laughs) (laughs) i mean we enjoyed that too, but I, I feel like most fanboys or fangirls or whatever, they they like went nuts for that sort of thing, right? Mm-hmm. And, you know, th- maybe there was a part of me that was like, oh, okay, nice, whatever, right? But the way that Brian Nazarello and Cliff Chang did it here, that was the thing that made me go, oh! <laughs> <laughs> Why can't they get us like that? Why I can't know, the other fanboys get us that way? <laughs> it's, it's so cool because nothing in my mind would have connected the Amazons and Wonder Woman's lore with the fourth world, you know? Uh-huh. uh-huh. Like it, it didn't cross my mind that that would be a connection to be made, but... The fact that once they did it, it was obvious. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's like I can't believe nobody ever did this before. Exactly, exactly. It makes so much sense. And then you get to, you know, when you put Orion into the story, you can avoid the thing that everybody always loves to do, which is to have Wonder Woman team up with Superman or or get together with Superman. You know, like she doesn't. You don't need a Superman character in this book when you already have Orion. Right. Which is hilarious because I think it was shortly after the New 52 era began that we got a Wonder Woman Superman comic where they were a couple. Yeah. Shipping at its worst. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And I also think that the design for Orion was really cool too once you actually do see him later. It is so good. It's um, it's true to the idea of what Orion is, but it's also modern in a really good way. In, in that the the version of Orion that most people, the classic version, is a guy in a red bodysuit with like blue tights on the outside and and his iconic mask, right? Yeah, and but, the astro harness. And the astro harness, exactly. But when we finally see him in the next volume, he. He's basically wearing a motorcycle jacket, and it's pretty cool. <laughs> yeah, it's so simple and sleek, but it just looks great on the page, and it fits the world that has already been established in the comic. Exactly. That's some exactly. clever stuff. Mm-hmm. 
I also liked the story with Hades and what, like all that stuff that you described with him and how he tried to manipulate or, or, you know, force Wonder Woman into marrying him, but he made her, he put the lasso around her to force her to tell the truth about whether or not she loved him. And with the lasso around her, she did tell him that she loved him. And the way that that story reveals why she was able to say that was the fact that she was not lying to him through the lasso. She doesn't have the ability to lie through the lasso. It's just that she genuinely, sincerely loves everybody. (laughs) So she was telling the truth. And I thought that was amazing. Like, it's the kind of thing that gives you insight into how the creators view the character that they're writing. Because... Once they reveal that, then you kind of have to look at the story from the perspective that of lens. yeah, like how does she demonstrate the fact that she truly loves everybody? And exactly. when you think about it, you definitely do see that time and time again throughout the story. Yeah, like yeah, like one of the simple things um, in this volume, I think at the end of this volume is when Hera gets thrown out of Olympus. She loses her power, and I guess maybe you see it more in the next volume, but Wonder Woman, you know, takes her in, and Hera ends up a mortal, this mortal version of Hera ends up becoming one of, she becomes part of Wonder Woman's de facto family, essentially, and eventually they care for each other. So it's, it's interesting to me to see how... Wonder Woman's love for everybody. Yeah. Is, you know, like how does that get portrayed throughout the story? Exactly. It's one of the primary themes that exists in this series. And it's, it goes back to what we were, what I was saying earlier, where if you view her as this diplomat, then what better diplomat is there than one? than someone who is able to view all parties with some form of love and compassion, right? Because it's the ability to have empathy for every side that makes you the ideal diplomat because you're not biased against one side because, you know, you hate them or whatever. And yeah, and on top you, of that, she can even forgive her enemy because Hera was the one who kind of kicked a bunch of these events off. She tried to kill Zola in the beginning of the story, but right. after you know all this other stuff happens, you you do see that Wonder Woman and Zola have actually been able to forgive Hera for all of what she did in the beginning. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. And it's, I guess you can almost reduce it down to the idea that one of the through lines of the series is the idea that as corny as it sounds, it's the idea of the changing the ability of the power of love to change things. Yeah. Yeah, totally. I mean, it's something that is necessary when you want to genuinely forgive somebody, I think. And I feel like, this is kind of the kind of story element where a lot of people could easily look at this and be be all like, 
this is ridiculous, un- unbelievable. Like, who could possibly forgive somebody that tried to murder them? That's mm. too hard to swallow. But I don't know. To, in my mind, like, number one, it's a story. Obviously, if we were talking about real people, that might carry more weight with me. But to me, talking about this Wonder Woman comic, my thinking is more along the lines of, why is it so hard to imagine a yeah, story of where... all the things that you're willing to allow yourself to yeah. imagine and accept? Why is that the one thing? At that point, it becomes a question of, is this a matter of you being unable to imagine it or a matter of you being unwilling to imagine it at that point? And it, yeah. it really becomes a question of, well, what's wrong with you? <laughs> Exactly. It says more about the person complaining than about the thing they're complaining about. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we see this. I mean, we've talked about this multiple times on on this podcast and in the past where people have an easier time imagining someone with this power being vengeful and vindictive and wrathful. That's the easy thing for them to imagine. Mm-hmm. But if you tell them, hey, if you had that much power and if you realized that that power was a responsibility instead of a right, then maybe you'd be more inclined to wield it with a level head. Yeah. But that's not anything that appeals to anyone (laughs) because they want to be able to imagine themselves throwing a tantrum and like, you know, beating up a bully that made them feel small at some point. Like everybody wants to be the firstborn. Not enough people want to be Wonder Woman. Yeah. Yeah. People love the idea of revenge. But we see repeatedly in the story that Wonder Woman is all about forgiveness. Like how many times in this entire run do we see her forgive her enemies? Even in in this volume, she forgives Hades for what he did. And and she, in a way she gives him a gift when she uses Eros's gun at the end of that issue and shoots him while he's looking at his own reflection in the mirror. Like, yeah, that was a pretty, like to me, I thought that was a pretty moving moment. It's, it was such a super comic booky thing to do where, you know, she fires this pistol that won't miss and it hits him like a love bullet, like Cupid or something. Yeah. (laughs) When he's just, when he's looking at the mirror, but, it's poetic, man. And then the way that it's drawn, where the the bullet hits him in the heart, but then the way that I think it was Tony Akins who drew that issue, but the way that he he draws the impact of the bullet, it creates this heart shaped uh, image. Whisk. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's yeah. a good art. Yeah. And I wanted to talk a little bit about that scene too, because that whole moment where it's 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 almost like Hades is a child or maybe like even some adult men who don't understand <laughs> like love where his whole thing is how can you love me but not want to marry me right it's this really reductive understanding of what love is and when she explains it to him about how like you can't really love anyone without you being able to love yourself first and maybe once you finally love yourself you can like really have a love for the general concept of people yeah then then that other kind of love will follow right but it's 
it's a weird like detour for the message to take, but I do think that that was a very cleverly done um, addition to this story. And and again, you know, if if you go back to the idea that uh, one of the running themes of this series is the idea of love and the power of love to change, um, you can't really avoid the idea of misunderstanding or not having an understanding of what romantic love is mm-hmm. you you can't like not address that as a part of it you know yeah yeah and th- this kind of stuff is exactly why the comic as a whole works so well because it's got this extra layer of depth it's got these additional layers of meaning that give the story meat. Like we could purely enjoy it for the drama and the mystery and the tension, but mm. it's got this extra stuff in it that just makes it worth reading, you know? Like it's actually about something. Right. 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 Shall we move on Here to we... the next volume? Yeah, let's do it. Volume three Iron. In an earlier tale from Wonder Woman's life, we see her as a young girl living among the Amazons. Although she is of them, they still treat her as an outcast. And as a result, she works extra hard to prove herself. One day she is in, she is approached by Ares, god of war, who takes her under his wing. She is a great pupil with much talent. On her 13th birthday, Wonder Woman is tasked with bringing a tribute to Hippolyta, and War sees this as a chance to test her. She she enters a labyrinth where she baits, where she bests a minotaur. War commands her to take its head as a prize, but she refuses and is and as a result is cast away by War for her decision. In in Antarctica. Uh, we jump back to the modern day and in Antarctica, the figure that has clawed his way from the ice eats a researcher and learns the language of man. He calls himself the firstborn. Apollo, Apollo, meanwhile, calls a meeting of the gods to Olympus, informing them of two prophecies. One is the coming of a great war and the other being that a child of Zeus would slay one of them and claim a throne for themselves. Back in London, Wonder Woman, Zola, Lennox, and Hera adjust to their new circumstances and work on trying to coexist with one another. In light of the current conditions, they merge their, they weigh their options, and Lennox proposes they, that they reach out to other demigods for assistance. Wonder Woman goes to Libya to seek out the first of the demigods, Soraka. After driving away some hostile soldiers, Wonder Woman finds a young girl who leads her to a hidden place where the rest of the villagers are. It turns out to be an ambush as the little girl is actually Soraka. Uh, Soraka attacks Wonder Woman and reveals her history as a young girl in Palestine in 1917. Hera came to her and killed her mother out of spite and then scattered her body into the winds. And now she only exists as a disembodied consciousness. Understandably, Soraka holds a grudge against Hera who Wonder Woman now protects. Wonder Woman, meanwhile, makes an appeal to Soraka's sense of family and convinces her to stop fighting. 
In Antarctica, the firstborn recounts the story of his birth. As the first child of Zeus and Hera, he was prophesied to take the throne. But Zeus, in his pettiness, ordered the child be destroyed. But due to Hera's pleas, the child would be spared. Wonder Woman uses Soraka's powers. Uh, back in Libya, Wonder Woman uses Soraka's powers to search the world over for signs of Hermes and baby Zeke, and is unsuccessful. Wonder Woman moves on, but she has made a new friend in Soraka. Orion, Orion, meanwhile, is sum summoned to a meeting. A grave threat exists, and its location is on Earth. Wonder Woman goes in search of another of her siblings, Milan, uh, only into only to encounter Orion as well. When it gets out that they have the last of the line, Orion demands to know where the child is and a fight breaks out. Milan releases a swarm of flies to bring an end to the fight. And after some talk, Orion makes a truce as their ob objectives all currently align with one another. Milan then uses his sight to find Hermes hiding with Demeter. Wonder Woman returns from their journey to find war, spending time with Hera and Zola, and he agrees to take them to Demeter. In her realm, a fight ensues, and in the end, war is the one who retrieves baby Zeke. After a moment of panic, Wonder Woman finds that war has actually returned the child to Zola and has no intentions of his own regarding the child. That's the end of volume three. My favorite bit is strangely enough just like my favorite part of volume two was the last page my favorite part of volume three is the last page also <laughs> when they yeah, finally yeah. have the baby and orion is like this whole time orion is just this sexist pig like a male chauvinist guy and there's a funny moment when they see zola's baby for the first time and wonder woman's like holding up the baby he's naked and she's like it's a boy and then orion's like thank the stars everybody looks at him <laughs> confused i'm just saying it'll be easier on me if i have to destroy a boy baby rather than a girl baby <laughs> and then there's this beautiful silent panel where wonder woman and zola just glare at him and then he says you people are all sexist <laughs> that's great man you're the real sexist <laughs> um yeah um you know going back to the theme that we talked about earlier one of the things that we see here is her interaction with soraka and soraka has every reason to hate hera in this in this story right but once again, we see Wonder Woman using the, her power as a diplomat, using her power as an ambassador of love, uh, again, corny as that may be, but she uses that to turn a foe from uh, an enemy to a friend, to family even, by appealing to that sense of love. So that was a good thing to see here. Um, oh yeah, back to what you were saying earlier about how that last panel uh, was a treat for you. Um, the one thing about that is I did like that. I think based on our conventional wisdom of, or our, our conventional conceptualization of Ares and war from, you know, previous comics, we've always seen him as an antagonist to Wonder Woman. But when we get to the end of this 
and he gets a hold of the baby, there's this scene where they panic because they're like, what's he going to do with the baby? And then they go back and it subverts that idea and expectation of what we had for him. And it turns out he's not a bad dude and he actually brings the baby back to Zola. That's, I thought that was a nice little twist. <laughs> yeah, it's definitely a good way to subvert our expectations. Exactly. It's a far exactly. cry from the classic Greek villain of the George Perez era. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, was there anything else about this volume? I just can't stop gushing about how good Orion looks, man. Orion just looks super cool. It's it's a nice modern take on that costume. It's it's just dope, man. I ain't got no words for it. Yeah. Good on you. <laughs> also, the way that they introduce these other siblings of uh, of Diana with Milan and Soraka, that's pretty interesting too. Because like we've already had Lennox, but uh, as far as I can tell, I don't think these characters are based on any specific members of the Greek pantheon. They're just right. characters that seem to. You know, just made up. Yeah, it, it logically makes sense that there would be all these other what do you call them? Bastards? I don't know. <laughs> all these other demigods. Yeah, demigods. <laughs> there you go. That's a lot that's a lot nicer. <laughs> no, no. You know, I, I was only calling them bastards because you know because <laughs> they're bastards. They're, they're unique, man. There ain't no there ain't no father to their style. <laughs> Right, right, right. <laughs> oh, man. All right. You want to move on to volume four? Sure. Volume four, War. With the news that War has sided with Wonder Woman, the rest of the Pantheon's suspicions are aroused, and they prepare countermeasures of their own. The firstborn gathers his forces and marshals his resources, confronting Poseidon. He is coaxed into going after Wonder Woman in order to retrieve Zeke, whom he will use against Apollo. Meanwhile, Artemis goes after Zeke for the Pantheon and is confronted by Wonder Woman, who dispatches with her. Lennox, Zola, and Hera make a break for it, only to be met by the firstborn and Cassandra, another demigod who has sided against, against them. The battle is met with Wonder Woman Lennox, and Lennox, doing their best to beat the firstborn. Even Orion joins the battle, but it is too much and the group flee via boom tube. The firstborn follows behind and Lennox sacrifices himself so that the others may escape. And they arrive to find themselves on New Genesis. On New Genesis, Wonder Woman and her team recuperate, but Wonder Woman knows she must return to Earth to face the firstborn. Highfather agrees to send them back, but not before deciding to take Zeke. Orion grabs the child, but Wonder Woman makes an appeal before they are sent off, and Orion, with the child, follows after them. Back in London, the firstborn has laid waste to the city. Wonder Woman, Orion, Hera, and Zola confront the firstborn and are uh, and are presented with Lennox's head. They are joined by war before being surrounded by the armies of the firstborn. A fierce battle breaks out with war unleashing forces from the history of man. 
the firstborn attacks her uh her directly and as he gains the upper hand wonder woman has no choice but to drive a spear through both war and the firstborn bringing an end to the battle war dies and wonder woman becomes the new god of war fulfilling the prophecy the broken first the broken firstborn is taken prisoner by apollo yeah um so there's a lot of action that goes on in this chapter with war and one of the prophecies finally gets fulfilled uh you you we we discover that it is one woman who ends up stabbing uh war through the through the chest killing him to assume the role as the new god of war uh mm-hmm. yeah that's i did not see that coming but I, I thought that was a good reveal for what we were expecting. I think uh, the whole time the they set up our expectations so that the child was going to, you know, usurp Apollo and become the next Zeus or whatever, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was some clever story misdirection to surprise us. And it's a yeah. thing that actually makes sense for diana's character and is also something that opens up all sorts of story potential and possibilities moving forward because i think the idea of diana as this warrior princess and as an ambassador of peace is pretty central to the concept of the character so to literally turn her into the god of war adds this extra dimension because now yeah because like now she's the god of war what does that mean for her role as an ambassador of peace yeah exactly (laughs) it's how can you be the god of war but still be an advocate for peace it's something that i think the the paradox is just something hard to wrap your mind around so it makes you more interested in reading more to find out how they how the creators decide to tell that story with her but that's some of the most compelling stuff right that Mm -hmm. it's that kind of internal turmoil that isn't flashy but on paper it's just so fascinating to try to reconcile these two ideas yeah because it'd be one thing if the main conflict of the story was just Wonder Woman and her allies fighting off the firstborn. Okay, you know, you can get some mileage out of that, but you can get a lot of mileage out of emotional turmoil and internal conflicts. Mm. And that mm. kind of conflict tends to be more thoughtful or more thought provoking. Yeah. At least as a reader, because. You can only take so many issues of mindless fist fights, even if there are superpowers involved. Exactly. But exactly. if you put someone through an emotional ringer or make them grapple with some kind of harsh truth that conflicts or contradicts some of their core beliefs, now you've got a real story, you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, the one other scene, I mean, not to derail what you know everything that you've just set up but (laughs) i will say that the one scene that i did like from this is 
war summoning all of the soldiers of oh, war's yeah. past to fight for them. <laughs> yeah. Uh, that was a cool little moment because they, at this point, the firstborn has summoned all of his forces, which are these like hyena men. And he's also got like regular soldiers and they've just basically laid waste to London. And all Wonder Woman has is her, Orion, and, uh, you know, war. War, right? So, in terms of numbers, there's definitely a differential there. But when he shows up and he just summons all these spirits to like fight on his behalf, that's a cool little scene. <laughs> yeah, totally. You know, speaking about all those hyena men who become firstborn soldiers, did he? Are those like. Did he have sex with a bunch of hyenas to make those kids? You know what? It wouldn't surprise me if that's the uh, unspoken <laughs> origin of them. Because um, if you think back to a lot of Greek mythology, that stuff happens all the time. You know? That is like, true. Yeah. There's a bunch of weird weird stuff that happens between men and animals and beasts so it it hadn't occurred to me that he was like their father or anything but yeah (laughs) because later on in another in another issue later in the series i think they actually do refer to him as their father so when i read that that was when i had that moment that awful moment where i was like wait a minute (laughs) if he's their dad (laughs) How did he make Who the mom? <laughs> Who the mom? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and like in his origin story, we learned that he was raised by hyenas. So I wonder if he has like an affinity for hyenas. <laughs> Man. That's, That's the uh, real horror. Exactly. <laughs> uh, <laughs> oh yeah. Right. Another thing that I really liked in the fight between everybody when they were in that church, the way that Orion fights, like not just in that issue, but like in the earlier issues too. I like the way that they draw him with this really brutal fighting style. He just looks like a brawler type, you know? Right. Right. Feels like Cause... he's a, kind of a wrestler. He, he literally climbs up this uh, gigantic pillar and it just totally reminded me of a wrestler going to the top rope and jumping off, you know? And I I think, I forget if it was this issue or another issue where he straight up gives somebody an, uh, an elbow drop, but like so many of his moves just look like wrestling moves. Yeah. And the thing about him is when he like loses it, his face gets super red and he becomes just more bestial, you know? He starts looking like dark side. Yeah, which is... You know, for anyone who who knows Orion, that's kind of his backstory, and it it's a nice touch to to you know to go back to his roots a little bit. But who knows if we had gotten more comics out of this? Who knows what they could have done with the idea of Orion? Yeah, they could have subverted that entirely. Totally. Know? And what we see of New Genesis in these issues is pretty fascinating too. Like the amount of world building that's laid into it. It's really impressive stuff. High father looks majestic, man. Like he looks 
like how you would imagine an alien king to look and there's just such a great sense of scale and and power to new genesis like even though we don't spend a whole ton of time there yeah like there there isn't a whole lot that we need to know about it but what we do learn about it is pretty interesting in and of itself yeah yeah all right you want to move on to volume five let's do it volume five flex Apollo seeks out three young women to serve as oracles, providing him with insight into the firstborn. He learns of his birth and subsequent upbringing in the world and how, from a young boy, he would rear a mighty army to wage war on heaven. As his forces arrive at the foot of Mount Olympus, Zeus raises a mighty wave to decimate them. He then wipes all record of the firstborn from existence, while Poseidon buries his army and Hades would imprison him in hell. But after 7,000 years, he would free himself upon Zeus's disappearance, seeking his chance at the throne. With this clarity, Apollo leaves with his prisoner, prepared to make him suffer. In the aftermath of the recent events, the Olympians tried to return to regular business, inviting the new god of war, to uh, Wonder Woman, to the table. This is a jarring shift in dynamics for her, as she's just spent the last few months trying to avoid death by their hands. Cassandra seeks out Milan and captures him. She intends to use him to find the firstborn. The meeting of the Olympians commences with, and Wonder Woman asks Apollo to restore Hera as a request. He denies, and Wonder Woman, and Wonder Woman takes her leave. As she parts ways with, uh, as Wonder Woman parts ways with Hermes, there are still many open wounds and unresolved feelings. Hermes can only hope to be forgiven by his former friends and allies. The Olympians address the prophecy of the coming war. Strife is embittered towards, towards Wonder Woman for the death of war and swears revenge on her. Strife comes to London to lavish gifts on Wonder Woman and her, her team. When Soraka arrives, uh, when Soraka arrives, warning them of Cassandra's plan to free the firstborn, the team go after Cassandra, leaving Strife with Zola and Zeke. With this time alone, Strife begins to slowly poison Zola, Zola's mind. Wonder Woman, Hermes, and Orion catch up with Cassandra and fight to free Milan. As Cassandra holds, holds Milan hostage, Wonder Woman tells Cassandra where to find the firstborn in order to free him. Wonder Woman returns to London to find that Zola, feeling guilt about the trouble that everyone's been put through for her sake, has run off. And using Strife's gift, she is now invisible to the gods. In the in an underground station, Zola meets Dionysus, who who takes her in. Without any other recourse, Wonder Woman seeks the assistance of Artemis to to track Zola. Dionysus takes Zola to to Provence, France to hunt for truffles where to her horror she watches as Dionysus transforms some of the other truffle seekers into into pigs. Zola runs off and right and runs right into Cassandra and her Minotaur who were tracking Dionysus's energy signature. The Minotaur savagely beats Dionysus and takes him back to Cassandra. Zola follows behind sneaking aboard Cassandra's ship as Wonder Woman, Hermes, and Artemis arrive. On Olympus, the firstborn frees himself from captivity and fights Apollo, seemingly killing him. 
Olympus is destroyed and rebuilt by the Firstborn as a tower of flesh. Cassandra arrives with Wonder Woman, Artemis, and Hermes close behind, and they do battle with the first with the Firstborn, who beats them all back. When Hera when Hera arrives fully restored. Oh, uh, when Hera arrives, she is fully restored as Apollo's last dying act. She whisks them all away to Paradise Island, where she reverts all the snakes back to Amazons and prepares them all for battle with the forces of the Firstborn. Yeah, so I I do think Hera has an interesting arc here that kind of mm-hmm. hits its peak. Because in the previous volumes, we see that she ends up losing her powers because of Apollo and she gets reverted to this mortal. And because she doesn't have anywhere else to go, she ends up hanging out with Zola and Wonder Woman uh, for for a while. And early on at first, Zola is pretty resentful of her, obviously, because she's been trying to kill her this whole time, her and her child. Mm -hmm. But again going back to that idea of the power of love and compassion eventually it gets to this point where we see her slowly soften to them and in later issues they they even learn to forgive her and this is someone who was actively trying to kill them you know yeah so when we get to this scene at the end where uh, uh, Apollo and the firstborn get into this big fight and Apollo's getting all sorts of messed up. And as a last resort before he dies, he sends this bolt of energy out that just completely restores her. And when they're all trying to fight with the firstborn and they're just getting messed up for Hera to show up and be the one to save them, that's a pretty uh, victorious moment, you know? Not not it necessarily is. for the battle, but it's a victorious moment for like the spirit of winning people over to being better people. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> There's no real win. other way for me to describe it, but yeah, it's it's a less spectacular win than like beating someone in a fight or winning a war, but in this moment the way that it's drawn, the way that she shows up and is the hero that they need, there is something heroic about that moment and something that makes you kind of cheer for this character that you should hate. Yeah. It's really fascinating how they were able to just give her so much development over all these issues. Like a lot of times she doesn't have, like there are definitely issues where she doesn't appear at all uh, just because, you know, she's not in those scenes. But you do get the impression that she continues to spend a bunch of time with Wonder Woman's uh, makeshift family and Zola and everybody and she's learning what it is to be mortal. And like towards the end here, uh, or at least in this volume, I mean, we see that she does have these fears and vulnerabilities that she's afraid of being alone and that her time being a regular mortal person has absolutely changed her, not only on a on a mental level, but literally changed her physically as well. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, like one of my favorite scenes in these issues is this moment uh, earlier on when Hermes. There's a scene when when 
Hera, Zola, and Diana are, and Zeke are, you know, sitting down at an outdoor cafe, and Hermes is in a really bad disguise across the street spying on them. Yeah, yeah. And it's it's one of those comical bits where he's obviously trying to be inconspicuous, but he can't help but be conspicuous, and they know it. And Hera just scoffs at him like, you know, she turns her nose up and just can't believe his audacity. But then Zola looks at her and she's like, really? I'm your friend now. <laughs> and it's like <laughs> just a funny thing to think about how like, yeah, all the stuff that you described, she was at she was trying to kill them. She was at odds with them and then eventually had nowhere else to go. So she ended up falling in with them. And just ended up somehow befriending them after all this time, you know? Right, right. To the point where even Zola was willing to call her her friend. And I think that kind of goes to show Wonder Woman's influence on the people around her. Because she's not just a hero who's limited to doing her own thing. But she's one of those heroes that actually inspires other people to change. Yeah. And that's yeah. not something that every hero can do, but Wonder Woman consistently succeeds at that. She wins people over and they become better people because of her. You yeah. can't really say that about, you know, Batman. Like, I'd even say you might not even be able to say that as consistently about Superman. So th yeah. it's definitely something that makes Wonder Woman stand apart from most of the other heroes that we can think of. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's this one scene either, too, that I, I, I'm looking for. I don't really quite remember, but I think the gist of it was at one point even. Um, and this is the thing that's a real change on, on Hera's part is at one point after ruminating on everything that's happened she she like legit says to zola like will you forgive me right because it's one thing for the character to be forgiven by the people that have wronged them of their own will but it's another thing for someone to have that moment of awareness and to ask someone for forgiveness yeah like, that that showed like tremendous growth on on her part. I'd I'd have to look for it, but yeah, that that was something that jumped out at me when I was reading it. Yeah, it shows a lot of humility on the part of that character because it's not easy to admit that you've done something wrong and then to ask the person you've wronged for forgiveness. Absolutely not. But she could have yeah. just continued on, you know enjoying her company because you know zola had already said that they were friends and they were obviously comfortable spending time with each other and they had grown to trust each other so in a way you could even tell yourself you know it's unspoken i know that she cares for me so i don't really have to go the extra step of asking for forgiveness but when you do truly care about somebody i think that's the kind of thing that you do end up doing because you want everything to be fully laid out on the table and you don't want to just leave stuff like that unspoken. You got to be 
honest with somebody and that kind of vulnerability doesn't necessarily come easily no no it does not like i think for most people it's easier to have someone forgive you than it is for you to ask someone for forgiveness that's yeah that's a rough place to be yeah all right move on to volume six Mm -hmm. volume six bones with the firstborn on the move wonder woman has to make her own plans she makes an appeal to the amazons about how dire the situation is and how they will have to adapt although zeke is a boy and forbidden on paradise island allowing him to remain on the island committing themselves to his protection will be the first step they need to make as poseidon and hades lie in wait to see how the conflict will end the firstborn arrives and snuffs hades out as the underworld manifests in the real world hermes Dion, and dionysus go to the underworld to investigate zeke is is stolen in the night by dessa one of the amazons who resists the cha- the changes that wonder woman proposes on a cliff ledge wonder woman tries to talk tries to talk sense into Dessa and convinces her to return Zeke, but she plunges off a cliff in an act of contrition. But Wonder Woman follows after her and saves her as Hephaestus appears with a fleet of ships, bringing with him the sons of Paradise Island. The firstborn cuts a swath through the various realms of the Olympians. Having decimated Hades, they move on to the realm of Demeter, where Wonder Woman engages him in battle. Demeter's realm is destroyed, but she manages to escape with Hermes and Artemis, while Wonder Woman stays behind to hold the Firstborn back. The Firstborn holds her captive, watching as his friends, uh, as his forces invade Paradise Island. A fierce battle ensues, and the Amazons valiantly hold firm, but are pushed back. The Firstborn offers Wonder Woman the opportunity to join him. But when she refuses, his his forces push forward. And as things are at their worst, Zeke activates his, his power and Hippolyta awakens from her stone sleep and joins the fray. As Wonder Woman drifts in and out of consciousness, she hallucinates a conversation between her and Ares, but it turns out to be Strife, who drags her back to Paradise Island. And upon her return, she regains some of her faculties and makes up with her mother. Wonder Woman goes off to find Zola, the only w- to find Zola because the only way to win the battle now is by placing Zeke on the throne of Olympus and to usurp the firstborn. As Zola flees, Cassandra and the foot soldiers of the firstborn, she is saved by Hera. Together they rejoin with Wonder Woman who takes Zola and Zeke to Olympus. Where Zola begins to suffer, strange. Where Zola begins to suffer strange effects, as Poseidon makes his play for the throne. As they approach the throne, Poseidon stands in their way, and Zola experiences a transformation, sprouting claws and tearing into Poseidon. The firstborn arrives to stop Wonder Woman with the Minotaur. They take Zola and Zeke captive and prepare. To toss them off a cliff into eternity. The firstborn commands the Minotaur to finish Wonder Woman off, but it flashes back to a memory of Wonder Woman showing him mercy many years ago and disobeys the firstborn's commands. 
leading to a beating where his where the Minotaur is unmasked. Unleashing her full power, Wonder Woman beats down the Firstborn, who tosses Zola and Zeke from the cliff. Hermes saves them, and together they place Zeke upon the throne. As energy crackles, the Firstborn fill, falls into the bottomless pit. Wonder Woman goes to Zola, who reveals that she has been Athena, born into the form of Zola, with the purpose of being the vessel that would in turn, birth Zeus into the world. As Athena prepares to shed the consciousness of Zola forever, Wonder, Wonder Woman begs that Zola be allowed to remain and to exist. Without a word being said, Zola is back, and Athena flies off. Wonder Woman hugs Zola with joy and gives thanks to Athena. In one final story, we see a young Wonder Woman and Alika in their youth, where they were where they were friends and witnessed the decision that would form a rift between the two. The decision is the one is the one in which Diana will someday leave the island. Wonder Woman struggles with the desire to leave Paradise Island, not wanting to let down those who love her when Athena appears to reassure her. An American plane crashes on the island, making first contact with the outside world. This is the exact sign that Wonder Woman has been looking for before she embarks on her greatest journey. That's a beautiful ending, man. Yeah. Yeah. It's got everything. It's got the spectacle. It's got the inspirational moments. It's got the beautiful character bits. It just captures everything that makes Diana iconic. Yeah. I'm I'm kind of curious. That very last issue, that sort of flashback issue that they have, is that the actual last issue of the story or um No, that was the story that was in Secret Origins number six. Secret ah, Origins was a series that it was like an anthology series where each issue had I think two twelve page stories from different creative teams featuring origins of various characters and that was that just happened to be the one that Azarello Chang and Suzuka did. So uh, I don't think it actually appeared last, but the absolute edition puts it after the final issue. I guess as I think in their mind, whoever decided the order of the collection was probably thinking it would just be a nice bonus track so to speak right 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 but reading it in this fashion this time i actually think it's something that kind of fits the ending because we don't really think about athena throughout those first 36 issues until you get to the end when we learn that zola is athena but then the origin issue it actually sets that up because it ends with Athena, you know, on this note where Athena is looking at Wonder Woman thinking, you're the, you're the one I have faith in is basically what she's thinking, which is actually a pretty interesting bit of insight to give the reader after reading the main story. Although I, I guess if you read the story, if you read the origin story earlier before the final issue, maybe 
the whole Athena thing wouldn't be quite as big of a surprise. Right, right. It's yeah, you're right. The contrast of that in the end does add a little flavor to to Athena's presence, right? Because I do feel like if if you had put that a little further up in the in the series, there might have been a part of you that would have just been like, "What's she got to do with anything?" You know, where's yeah, she? Or been? you'd just be wondering, "Wait, where's Athena been this whole time?" Then <laughs> yeah, exactly. But by leaving it at the end, it makes the reveal that much more of a surprise. Yeah, it's a surprise, but it's also one of those surprises that makes sense because Athena is one of those Greek gods that's probably one of the more prominent ones. And yeah. it does make you kind of wonder where she had been in the story this whole time. Yeah, like it's it's a clever thing that Brian Nazarello does and, you know, by using these existing by using the existing pantheon of the Greek gods to uh, as the supporting cast members and characters in this story, right? Um, it, it almost like he he puts that faith on us as the reader to either know these things or to go seek them out, so that in a way it's it's almost like the oldest. Uh, shared universe or something like that right <laughs> where where he just took characters from these this really old existing greek mythology and was sprinkled out all of the different various characters throughout the run of the series and eventually you know if i can imagine someone being uh, a greek Grecophile, Grecianophile, I don't know what the term is, but someone who's like really into Greek mythology, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, reading this and going, oh shoot, there's uh, Athena. Oh shoot, there's Hephaestus. Oh shoot, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah, it's, it's, I think in the hands of a lesser writer, they probably would have had to do a lot more to be like, oh yeah, this is that God, this is that God, and just really like reinforce, um, you know the belief that oh you i'm going to assume that you don't know anything about greek mythology mhm yeah yeah that's some good stuff that's a good way to interweave mythology into a superhero comic mhm exactly and one oh go ahead oh no go ahead go please i was just going to say one of the things that again i would i would say that the ending emphasizes is how diana is a character who not only is a warrior or literally the god of war but someone who remains an advocate for peace and forgiveness it's just fascinating to see how the story goes to these great lengths to show that she can be both a warrior and an ambassador for peace yeah because like there are definitely times when she has to fight people. I mean, she doesn't give Firstborn any mercy at the end. She She's willing to throw him down the pit, you know? Like, she showed him mercy earlier in the story, and he kind of wasted his chance. He didn't become yeah. a better person. He just had another opportunity to do more evil and destroy more stuff. So, you know, at this point, 
I think a re- any reasonable person would be like, okay, you've had enough chances and I can't really let you live anymore. So just fall down this yeah. pit for another 7,000 years. <laughs> so, right, right. Yeah. And, and that makes sense. Cause I, I feel like even when we think about the classic iteration of wonder woman, she's somebody who fought Nazis and stuff. Right. So, you know, that's the ultimate uh, villain where, you know, I, it's easy to think of Nazis as those villains where you don't have to think twice about wasting them or feel any sense of regret at finishing them off. So there, there's a sense where Wonder Woman doesn't necessarily need to show mercy to everybody, right? But then even when she does show mercy, her mercy has certain limitations. So she no longer needed to show any more mercy to the firstborn after what he had just done. But then she shows mercy to all of these other characters. Um, When she, when she sees her sisters again, after the Amazons are restored and Dessa is about to throw Zeke off the cliff, but has second thoughts. And then she jumps off to kill herself in, uh, I guess in regret Wonder Woman, she's not having that. You know, she goes down, and she she flies down and and saves her fellow Amazon before she can die. Uh, she manages to convince the Amazons of Paradise Island to accept their male brothers, the yeah, male Amazons yeah. that became Hephaestus's sons. She's always like bringing people together. The story doesn't try to explicitly show you and make a big thing out of it to to hit you over the head with how she's an ambassador but when you actually just consider what's happening it's pretty obvious that she's bringing people together even if they don't necessarily fully lock arms or sing kumbaya or whatever they're able to operate together and be on the same side and work against the common foe right right yeah i wanted to go back a little bit to follow up with Hera's trajectory in this too, because in this scene or or in this volume, there's there's also this other plot line that they toy with where Zola begins to worry that now that Hera has re rediscovered her godhood and her powers, that she may revert to being the murderous um the murderous petty god that she was <laughs> but but the thing is again it's another like great moment for her because as she, as zola is running around from uh cassandra and from these other forces that are trying to kill her and capture her and zeke she shows up and it turns out that Hera is the one that ends up saving them. Um, we see earlier on, uh, once she gets her powers back, there's a little bit of that arrogance returning and a little bit of that coldness as she talks to them. And we get the sense that there's something not right there too. But in that moment, all of that is vindicated. And it, it again goes back to that idea that, you know, Wonder Woman has the capacity to, to change people by example with the power of like love and goodness and all that and 
you know, what it's easy to like affect someone when they are on a downward spiral in their life and they need you. But in this instance, she has affected her so much that once she has been restored, even then she maintains that goodness from the brief period of time that she spent as a mortal with Wonder Woman. So it's a nice close to that arc for her. Yeah, it's a great close to Hera's arc, and it's a really powerful testimony of Diana's power to change. Yeah, yeah. It really says a lot about her character and what makes Wonder Woman special. Mm. Yeah. And the ending, too, is pretty funny because... Azarello has to end it with another pun. <laughs> yeah, the who? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> As yeah. Athena turns back into an owl and flies away. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's a beautiful way to end it, though. Uh, well, yeah, there's there's a bit at the end that I also wanted to mention, too. And I do think it it's another scene that just highlights, you know, so much of this really is consistent and it's brian azarello staying on message in terms of well if this is truly what he believes diana uh you know one woman to be then he is he has done a, a good job a great job of maintaining that consistency and we see that here at the end where once athena comes back it's the moment where that could be the end of it all right like Theoretically, all of their problems are over. Athena's back. But she cares so much for Zola, who who kind of really isn't a person technically, right? Because she is kind of... She's the figment of someone's imagination that they conjured into human form. And when Athena leaves, Diana begs her... Uh, she straight up gets on her knees life. and begs. Yeah, yeah. And she, here's, here's what she says to her. She says, I pray to your wisdom what your name, what you name a vessel has proven to be so much more. She is kind. She is clever. She is honorable and forgiving and witty. Every life she's touched is better because in the midst of chaos, she showed us humanity. We've seen what kind of monsters we gods create when love is denied. Zeke needs his mother. He needs Zola. And so do I goddess when given choices should we not choose love above all else and yeah it's it's something that we see again and again is that these gods because of their immortality because of their distance from humanity i i think this is an idea that has been around for a really long time but it's the idea of the greek gods as just petulant children that are really all about their immediate desires because they're not really concerned with anything else. And it's Wonder Woman here showing us that it is humans that give us the capacity to learn love and to learn compassion and humans that make us better deities for them, right? And yeah, I, I, I think that's, a through line that we see through 
throughout this series is just that need for again for for love to to make us just be better you know better towards one another essentially Mm -hmm. (laughs) yeah yeah and it's exactly like you said azarello and chang pretty much stayed on message the whole way through we mentioned earlier that they portrayed diana as somebody who loves everybody and that's been carried through to its natural conclusion by the end of their story you know we see the fruits of that character arc and they've been absolutely consistent in showing us the readers why wonder woman is a special character I also, I mean, if you don't have anything else on that subject, I did want to talk about one other thing. Sure, go for it. Um, one of the characters we don't really talk about too much is the Minotaur. Mm. And I do think that how his arc ends here is, it's a pretty satisfying arc because when he's introduced, we don't really know anything about him. He's just kind of muscle, right? And mm-hmm. what he is is he's this he's he, he he's a big dude, big hairy dude with what I can only describe as a gimp mask and <laughs> dominatrix <laughs> gear. Like I don't know anything about that culture, so if I'm off, I'm off. But yeah, so so he's throughout the series he's just been beating up all of the random gods and just kind of serving as the muscle for the firstborn or for for cassandra and here in the end as he's standing over wonder woman the firstborn commands him to like behead her and it turns out that this is the same minotaur from when uh diana was a a young kid and she goes into the labyrinth and she could have killed this minotaur but she chose not not to and that one scene where he just throws down the knife and the firstborn just beats the crap out of him and when the mask comes off and you realize oh he really is an actual minotaur under there it's not a dude yeah that's that's quite a quite a reveal yeah that was pretty surprising because like you said he had a like a gigantic body but he he looked like a regular human and i think in the flashback story he looked more like a beast yeah it seemed the implication was that this minotaur is the same minotaur that diana spared all those years ago and her mercy towards him impacted him so that you know at this moment when he had her at his hands you know he ended up not being able to lay the final blow so he showed mercy to her but unfortunately it cost cost him his his life life. yeah yeah and but that's the moment where seeing that and having it all come together for her that's the moment that goes back to what you were talking about where she finds her resolve and she decides i have given you every chance for mercy and now there is no longer any room for it because well, you're actively killing people and hurting people. 
Yeah, so, exactly. You know, at the end of the day, your the danger that you the threat that you uh, pose is far greater than my my dedication to to peace and mercy, right? So mm-hmm. it, it becomes this thing where um, she acknowledges the duality of her being and 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 it comes out in this way that says where it essentially says that although i'm an ambassador of peace i also have a commitment to protect those around me Mm -hmm. if that's what it takes yeah then she's gonna do what she has to do yeah it's a good scene it's it's uh yeah i liked it i liked how this series ended and the artwork in that Minotaur scene is incredible too, because when we see the helmet come off and we see the Minotaur's sad, broken face, it's really you feel pity pitiful. for him. Yeah. 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 It's, it's incredible what kind of emotion one panel, that simple drawing can pull out of you in that moment. That's some good mm. stuff. Mm. Okay. All right. So. We've talked about the craft and the originality of the story. Let's talk a little bit about the impact of the story of this run. What sort of lasting influence did this comic have? Did it leave a mark within the DC universe on the industry or on pop culture? Do fans remember it with affection? Hmm. I think as it was coming out, it was certainly getting a lot of accolades, certainly relative to the other New 52 books. I think this was the one that was the most consistent. I don't know if it's something that people still acknowledge this many years out, but I think if people look back at it, it's it's certainly the shining star of that period of comics because if you compare it to its contemporaries uh, in terms of what came out at that period of time, I don't think anything was really that good. Maybe... Batman Incorporated might have been the closest thing, or Batman and Robin. Um, yeah, Robin and Batman. That might have been uh, comparable, but this was probably the most consistently good work. Um, it's clearly the you know, best New Fifty Two comic. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and and the Morrison Batman stuff is the only thing that I think comes close, but that was in progress for years before the new 52 began so it's even kind of difficult to make that comparison and you could even argue right. that the new 52 slightly derailed the morrison batman because of the continuity shenanigans yeah that's true i mean if the new 52 served to reboot the entirety of the universe then uh, of the dc universe then wonder woman was the one book not the that actual universe (laughs) yeah yeah yeah. but wonder woman was the one book that took that challenge and made it work whereas i i can't say that for any of the other books that came out at that time um that were supposed to be you know this this rebranded version of dc comics like Mm -hmm. they just don't fit the bill um and maybe you could say that if we didn't get the new 52, we might not have gotten this series in all likelihood. And I, I think there's a truth to that. I don't know. 
here's an interesting exercise like would you uh be willing to erase the entirety of the new 52 if it meant that you don't have this series uh, that's a that's heck a of a one. conundrum yeah <laughs> but here's the thing though i this is a again from the modern masters interview with cliff chang from what he said that from what he said they did actually plan this series out before they even knew what the new 52 was about so okay okay yeah and they said that there were a couple he said that there were a couple of things that they ended up changing because of the new 52 but it was yeah. things like they what they had originally thought was they were going to do a story that took it to account took into account all of Wonder Woman's publishing history so it would have been a story where she was a lot older um and that they were going to include uh, flashback scenes of her fighting in in like World War II and stuff like that, um, and it would you know be a story about her throughout time, world history. Yeah. Um, and I, I don't really know too many more details than that, but yeah, that, I think the idea with the New Fifty Two was that they ended up uh, excising the the idea of an older, more experienced Wonder Woman and went with this younger, fresher Wonder Woman who was in her 20s and basically coming into her own throughout the course of the story. Yeah, yeah. In terms of, like, the effects on their careers, I mean, I'd say that Brian Azzarello was already a hot item at the time. I don't know if it made him more of a hot item or what, but, you know... It, it didn't hurt him. Um, if mm-hmm. anything, Cliff Chang probably got a boost. He was already pretty pretty big at this time, too. But, you know, we've seen him continue to get more work since then. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. You know, between this and uh, his Catwoman, he's also... I think he probably ended up doing, like, Paper Girls after that. I mean, that's not a DC comic, but, you know, he he certainly hasn't faded into the background is what i'm saying yeah for sure yeah yeah i don't know if anyone was necessarily inspired by this i i haven't really read too much wonder woman stuff in recent years to see if anyone's like cherry picked any of the details from this story to you know mine it for uh ideas it but, feels like probably not because this story is so singular and took place during an era when they actually had the creative freedom to ignore the rest of the DC universe mm-hmm. and play in their own sandbox. Like, in a way, yeah. this comic kind of feels like Ultimate Wonder Woman, you know? It really does. It really does. And then I, mean, after, I never read the comics after their run because I think David Finch took over. <laughs> and yeah. Yeah, I wasn't interested in that <laughs> yeah the only one run that happened after it that was of any you know real worth was the greg rucka liam sharp run yeah greg rucka yeah. liam sharp nicola scott bill quist evely yeah uh, that whole rebirth era is an awesome wonder woman run but that one is also a little bit probably more in line with what we would consider a more traditional Wonder Woman because it's got, you know, her rogues gallery, 
her classic uh, premise. So she fights Cheetah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Not Cheetah. Cheetah. <laughs> She's a supervillain. You have to pronounce things differently <laughs> because it's a name. She is a despicable supervillain. <laughs> But yeah, I don't. I don't think this comic it's had too much of an impact. So I think on our criteria, that's kind of where it doesn't score as high. And you know, it doesn't. It's no judgment on the quality of the comic because we clearly think the world of it. But yeah, I don't think the world thinks too much of it. Yeah, I mean, not to like jump ahead, but in terms of us being out here 10 years after it's come out we can it's easier for us to look at what's happened since then to see if 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 any of those impacts have come to fruition and they kind of haven't if anything the dc universe has continued to go on its own path away from it because you know movies or whatever right <laughs> yeah like who knows who knows what 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 metric they use to decide uh what version of wonder woman works now but they just um, got to go with the dumbest down version of it is probably it probably probably uh i mean i haven't really read any modern wonder woman comics so who knows <clears throat> well you read that Rekka rebirth run that's relatively modern right yeah but that's i mean relatively you know <laughs> it was only what 2016 2017 <laughs> yeah yeah i guess yeah. that's eons in comic book years yeah all right you want to talk about this book's ability to withstand the test of time yeah is this comic something that holds up today outside of the context of its original publication and is it something that we could read over and over again in the future absolutely I think this is we we've talked about evergreen Wonder Woman stories and with this being so fresh in my mind I can absolutely say this is an evergreen Wonder Woman story it says everything that you need to know about Wonder Woman the character it doesn't bog itself down by tying itself to the stuff that was happening in justice league or in superman or in batman or at the time it is really just a self-contained singular piece of work and i think if i was ever to talk to someone and try to recommend to them if they came to me and said what's a good wonder woman story it'd be incredibly easy just to pick this and say this this is if you just want one fantastic wonder woman story this this fits the bill because you can read it and you don't need anything else. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. One more quote that I want to read from the modern masters interview with Cliff Chang. This is him reflecting on fan response just slightly over two years into the run, but this is what he said. And I quote, I think the best fan response I get is from new readers. Lots of women who hadn't read comics before, and this is their first Wonder Woman. I think there's a gulf between the perception, the icon, 
of Wonder Woman and what the character has been in the comics. Has the idea of Wonder Woman changed with time? I've heard derogatory comparisons with Xena, Warrior Princess, but that was a really popular show, so I don't think that's a bad thing. When you think about Wonder Woman now, a lot of women and men want to see a kick-ass physical character. They want to see a little grit to it, a little danger, which is the opposite of the classic Wonder Woman who pines over Steve Trevor. I think that stuff is antithetical to what we perceive as a strong woman these days. At her heart, Wonder Woman should be transgressive, and I hope we're doing that. I dig it. So, yeah, I, I dig it too, man. I feel like he clearly gets it, you know? That's what makes Wonder Woman special. So, Albert, tell me, now that we're at the end of things with this episode, what would you recommend to people who like... <laughs> this run of wonder woman <laughs> jeez uh man i had a hard time coming up with this because i think when i read things and i look for things to recommend i tend to i tend to cling to the elements of a of a work or a story that that jump out at me the most and try to find works with those similar kinds of elements and i think initially when i read this the the thing that jumped out to me the most was the idea of again of diana wonder woman as a diplomat as someone who really uses strategy and communication as this means of problem solving so the only thing that really jumped to mind was something like game of thrones and it's not just because they were like they're both in a semi-fantasy setting with dragons and you know monsters and magic and sorcerers and stuff but that's probably the only thing i can think of um i i feel like i had something else earlier on the tip of my brain when we were talking but i've since forgotten it you didn't write it down I didn't write it down. Don't get old, kids. <laughs> don't do drugs. Don't get old. <laughs> if it comes to me while you're uh, listing your um, recommendations, I'll 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 put it at the end. Okay. So here's a list of recommendations, and and we're gonna start with a bunch of the more straightforward and obvious ones that, because like I think what you were getting at just now is. You tend to look for when you come up with your recommendations. You tend to look for things that kind of capture like the same spirit or heart of the work that we just talked about. And this is a pretty unique comic, and it wasn't super easy to think of something along similar lines. So it really isn't. <laughs> yeah, that's that's my caveat for this upcoming list of recommendations because these aren't necessarily things that are similar to wonder woman but the obvious ones would be of course the other azarello and chang collaborations specifically doctor 13 architecture and mortality and we talked about that in episode 86 other azarello comics especially 100 bullets because that's a book that i think does do a lot with machinations and political maneuvering and there's even 
a character in that story that kind of reminds me of the firstborn. There's a character in 100 Bullets called Lono. Or is it uh, is it Lano or Lono? I but, call him Lano, but just like Bono. Yeah. <laughs> okay, we'll call him Lano. Exactly. I'm just Bono. <laughs> Shout out to you two and our buddy Eric yeah. who loves them. <laughs> With or without you, boy. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but yeah, Lano is another character like the firstborn, where pretty much every day is like Sunday, bloody Sunday. <laughs> Uh, yeah, he's dude's just a friggin' force of nature, dude. Cause he, he's just the kind of being that's just absolutely unstoppable, which is ridiculous. Cause Lano's literally just a regular guy. I mean, maybe not a regular guy, but he's flesh and blood. He's not a demigod like the firstborn. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> but yeah, Hundred Bullets has a lot of that kind of mystery yeah it's got a lot of mystery kind of like the way that wonder woman starts out with the good mystery and these mysterious gritty elements so uh i feel like that's probably the crown jewel and azarello's writing uh bibliography of course we'd have to recommend other cliff chang comics too especially paper girls catwoman lonely city and human target uh in terms of other Wonder Woman comics, there's quite a few. And I think we discussed most of these Evergreen Wonder Woman stories back in episode 41. So you can go check out that episode for longer discussions about these. But there's Greg Rucka's first run, but specifically the Haikatea graphic novel. He did that in the earlier 2000s. And then we mentioned his Rebirth era run with Liam Sharp, Nicola Scott, and Bill Cleese Evely. There's also the Wonder Woman Earth One trilogy by Grant Morrison and Yannick Paquette. There's Wonder Woman The True Amazon by Joel Thompson. There's a couple of JLA stories that really showcase Wonder Woman as well. There's JLA The Queen of Fables and JLA Golden Perfect. One more thing that just came out recently. I haven't actually read it myself yet. I just got my copy in the mail earlier this week and I've flipped through it and the artwork is just absolutely drop dead gorgeous. But mm. it's a black label book, Wonder Woman Historia, The Amazons by Kelly Sue DeConnick, Phil Jimenez, Jean Ha, and Nicola Scott. And from what I can tell, it's something that taps into the mythology and history of the Amazons. So maybe it's not strictly a wonder woman story in the in the traditional sense but it's something that i think with all the acclaim i've heard of it it's probably something that's definitely worth reading mm -hmm. another thing that i would recommend two more things these are things that i do actually think have some similarities with the as chang wonder woman uh you mentioned game of thrones earlier as your pick uh, i'm gonna pick the Witcher novels by, I'm going to butcher his name, uh, but Andrze Sapkowski, the author of The Witcher novels. And I guess nowadays everybody knows The Witcher because of the video games and because there's a Netflix show. Hmm. Uh, I've, I have not seen the Netflix show. I have played the video games and I've read all of the books. But the books 
I would definitely recommend and yeah, and the video games too, because they also uh have similar themes and concepts, but I'd recommend The Witcher because like Wonder Woman, it's a story about uh mythology. Like there's a lot of mythology and European folklore in the Witcher stories that are kind of played in a subversive way and end up becoming like these more modern adult and uh, more serious or gritty takes on classic fairy tale type stories. There's a lot of stuff involving power struggles and political machinations and treachery and stuff like that going on where people are vying for power and the main character the protagonist of the witcher Geralt he's kind of got some similarities to Diana in this story he's not a chosen one he's not a demigod like she is but he has special powers and he's also kind of caught up in this power struggle between forces that are way above his reckoning. And he's like kind of beneath their notice in a way, but he earns their notice because of what he does. So mm. I do think that there are some things in the Witcher books that are kind of similar. The last thing I'll call out is the Jason Aaron run on Thor. <laughs> it's another story that takes mythology Norse mythology in this case and gives a superhero spin to it and it's a lot longer than this Wonder Woman run it's a lot more sprawling but I do think that it has some similar elements Matthew Wilson colors a lot of it as well uh, the Russell Dowderman issues in particular featuring the Jane Foster Thor I think do a really good job of showing the cost of power and what it means to sacrifice yourself to be a hero and yeah i guess the mythology element of it uh probably plays a role in my enjoyment of it for a recommendation here in this episode so that's all i got did you think that of the thing that was on man. the tip of your tongue i did not i was uh, so captivated in listening to you that i i think your list more than covers for the both of us. <laughs> uh, all right. Well, if there's nothing else, then by all means, if you uh, are listening to us and you'd like to ask us some questions or contribute some, uh, you know, some co uh, topics for the conversation, feel free to hit us up at between the gutters podcast at gmail.com. Or uh, hit us up on our Instagram at Between the Gutters or tweet at us. Um, yeah, we'd love to hear from you. If you're listening to us on whatever platform you're listening to us on, yeah, please uh, give us a high rating because it helps us and boosts us to other people that might be interested. And uh, yeah, share, like, subscribe, all that good stuff. Don't forget to name all your firstborn children after us. I I want your firstborn and secondborn children named after me. Yeah, and lastborn. And lastborn. Any children that you might have. Just <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, you're not allowed to have children that aren't named between the gutters. Yeah. That'll make it easy. <laughs> <laughs> All right, everybody. 
Thanks again for listening. Next week, we are going to talk about another DC comic, a more recent one. It'll be Superman Space Age by Mark Russell and Mike Allred. Catch you next time. Peace. Bye, everyone.